understanding each of these levels of consciousness and the body parts associated with them and the functions associated with them becomes a very good diagnostic tool. And when you understand what the functions of each of these levels of consciousness is, when somebody's lacking function in those areas of their body and those or those physiological functions, such as the ability to breathe properly, then we know where to look in their life to create the medicine. So for a lot of them out there, a lot of people, it could be just spending time in nature Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking about using ancient wisdom to reimagine your own health and performance and discusses how our relationship with nature plays a pivotal role in the development of human consciousness. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for an exciting announcement from the Czech Institute. Well, hello again, and welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I'm excited to share a solo podcast, Ancient Wisdom for Reimagining Your Health and Performance. To begin with, I'm going to share a little introduction so that you understand the nature of how I'm going to go about sharing ancient wisdom for reimagining your health and performance. So in this podcast, Ancient Wisdom for Reimagining Your Health and Performance, I'd like to start with man, nature, and the evolution of consciousness. In part two, I will look at many practical ways we can retain our holistic nature as we move forward into the future so we don't suffer more negative effects of being overly mental and technical at the expense of what ultimately supports consciousness holistically so we can effectively use our mental capacities. Many researchers have looked into how human consciousness developed as we evolved as a species on Earth. Some of the people I've studied are Gene Gebser, Arthur M. Young, Carl Jung, Joseph Campbell, Major General J.G.R. Forlong, Mercia Eliade, Ken Wilber, and Dustin DePerna's work of synthesis on these topics is found in his excellent book titled Streams of Wisdom, for those of you that are uh, more interested in a deep and comprehensive exploration of the evolution of consciousness in man and how it plays out in religion and modern-day thought. Though it is not my intention to share an expose of consciousness itself, which is a very deep topic that I will address in future podcasts, and that I do address in my Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 2 program, HLC3 program, and the Czech Four Quadrant Coaching Mastery program, I go into quite deeply the issues of consciousness and some of my other workshops. But there is great healing wisdom available by understanding how we related to nature and how nature informed us at each stage of the development of human consciousness and how reconnecting to the abilities we use to survive and thrive in nature can be very beneficial to us today. So that's my real thrust with this uh, podcast uh, series and the structure of it is basically taking us through what we've learned through the studies of anthropology and history and all the related sciences, particularly how consciousness emerged through our own development in nature and how we can look at that 
because as I will show you, each level of consciousness comes with unique skills, comes with a unique way of relating to nature, and it even ties into different parts of our body and the way uh, we function. And in part two, I will highlight how a lot of the health challenges we face today ultimately result from the fact that we have lost connection to the parts of our bodies, or you could say our soul, really, that were so uh, essential to our relationship with nature, uh, life, and each other in uh, times past. Gene Gebser's research into the evolution of human consciousness is comprehensive, but a beautiful yet comprehensive review of Gebser's work can be found in the excellent book, Seeing Through the World, by Jeremy Johnson, and I will be referring to uh, a few of the sections of that book to highlight key points. Let's visit each of the known structure stages of consciousness in Gebser's model, which are called structure stages in modern parlance, so we can both reconnect to our evolutionary history and gather some reminders as to the abilities and skills that were both given to us by nature and supported our evolution through untold millennia. The thrust of this two-part series is, is how we can benefit from reconnecting to and using the holistic principles and practices encapsulated in our evolution and as conscious beings today. So we're going to begin our exploration with Gebser's first stage of consciousness, uh, consciousness development or conscious development, which is the archaic stage. Now, I'd like to point out that there are several different models out there um, that have different starting points, may have different levels, um, and have different ending points as well. Ken Wilbur has uh, some structure stages that he shares. Arthur M. Young has a beautiful uh, system of structure stages. And there are other researchers as well. Um, I've chosen Gebser's because, one, it has a lot of beautiful truths to it. Two, in some ways it's more complete. And three, in some ways it's more honest. And um, if I was really giving you a presentation here on consciousness, I would go into the, some of the depths of these nuances, but it's not necessary for what I want to share today. So we're going to go through each of the structure stages of consciousness, and I'm going to highlight what was important at that time and how that affect the growth and affected the growth and development of our consciousness, but also, as you will see, it relates to how our bodies are formed, because we're going all the way back to the beginning. Because it's not my intention to give you a comprehensive academic uh, expose of the structure stages of consciousness, I'm not going to be quoting time periods such as, you know, Paleolithic age or any of the ages of, of the earth and things like that. My goal is really to highlight the key things that we can learn by understanding the structure stages of consciousness so we can understand how we can capitalize on the holistic way in which our 
way of living and relating to each other in the world were formed, and through that information and awareness, we can then say, okay, well, based on this knowledge, how does that relate to me now, and what are some things that I can do differently in my life that could greatly enhance my ability to live holistic and therefore experience wholeness? So Gebser's stage begins at archaic consciousness. Now, as a quick overview, archaic consciousness relates to stones, earth, plants, trees, guts, intuition, and sensation, being one with nature or fused into nature. And I'm also going to give you an expose of the elements because they're very related to the archaic structure stage. So in my discussions of archaic consciousness, I will highlight our deep connection to the elements that create life on Earth, the plants, the trees, our gut system, and how these relate to conscious functions such as sensation and intuition. So to preface the whole discussion, I'm referring to Jung's four functions of consciousness, which are thinking and feeling sensation and intuition. So based on Jung's research, and it's been collaborated by many others, when we say, well, what is consciousness? Simply put, the answer would be being aware that you're aware. We are called homo sapiens sapiens, which means uh, man that knows that he knows. So the element that I'm referring to, the elements I'm referring to, of the uh, functions of consciousness, being aware that we're aware. In order to be aware, we need intuition, we need sensation, we need thinking, and we need feeling, because if we lack any one of those four qualities of consciousness, it leaves a huge gaping hole in our awareness that we're aware. And as it will become clear, I'm sure, as we progress through the program, those that have uh, lost touch with the developmental stages of consciousness and the things that I share that are linked to them are highly susceptible to not only health problems, but relationship problems and psychological problems. And when you multiply that by millions of people, well, you get exactly what we've got going on in the world today. Before we begin our exploration together, I'd like to point out that I'll be referring to the elements in the same light as the alchemists have for thousands of years. When speaking of the elements of earth, water, fire, and air, the alchemists were not always being literal. And it is this misunderstanding of alchemical concepts that leads to the uninitiated doubting or rejecting alchemical teachings. When speaking of earth, or the earth element, the alchemists were referring to anything that solidifies. For example, water can become frozen, and it is considered earth in this regard. In other words, if it's solidified, it's frozen. Think of plastic. You can pour it into a mold, and then it solidifies. When it's in its liquid form, it would be considered water-like. When it's in its solid form, it would be considered earth-like. So on that note, when speaking of water, the alchemists were referring to anything that can be liquefied, be it steel, ice, or fats, for example, that reach their melting point. Uh, 
when speaking of air, the alchemists were, were referring to any of this, uh, anything in the state of a gas. So water heated to a boil becomes vapor, and it rises as a gas, or it becomes air-like. The burning of gasoline becomes carbon monoxide gas, which is an expression of the air element in alchemy. So we wouldn't think of carbon monoxide as air, but in alchemy we would think of it as related to or congruent with the air element. When speaking of the fire element, the alchemists were referring to that which has the power to transform one substance into another. The alchemists refer to several different forms of fire, including the fire we use to cook and the fire of our metabolism. And as you will see as we move along here, I will talk about other types of fire that are expressed by alchemists practicing alchemy, which are quite interesting and relevant. So let's start with the question, what is archaic consciousness? The beginning of embodied consciousness on earth starts with archaic consciousness. The subconscious of the earth, which could be understood as the creative consciousness of higher beings within the vast pantheon of consciousness at large, those wanting to learn more about the influence of higher beings as formative forces and life in life and nature can learn a lot from Rudolf Steiner's teaching, a good book to start with about how all this works together is a book by Steiner called Universe, Earth, and Man. He has many other books talking about higher forms of beings, such as angels. But before I lose you with the angels comment, remember that when I'm using a term like angel, I'm really talking of the flow of energy and information in the cosmos, and human beings have, shall we say, created an image or a way of imaging this information flow, especially when it's personal, by calling these beings angels. But from a scientific perspective, what we call an angel could be a being that is really a representation of or an imaginal being that carries the flow of energy and information. And in fact, whenever people see angels, there's some kind of information being transferred. A key point to comprehend is that archaic consciousness does for the world and all its living beings exactly what your personal unconscious does for you. It keeps you alive. It is your personal unconscious, the unconscious within you and the subconscious that keeps your digestion, metabolism, assimilation and elimination functioning, keeps you breathing, keeps your heart beating, keeps your cells regenerating, etc. So when we're talking about archaic consciousness, we're really going all the way back to the beginning of life on Earth. And remember, there's two forms of evolution happening on the planet, and they talk about this very beautifully in Theosophy. We have anthropomorphic generation, which is the evolution of bodies. So we go all the way back to single-celled organisms or even before that, viruses, bacteria, and fungi, which are the parents of, of all things that have bodies on this planet, really, that are living beings, be it plants, trees, microorganisms, etc. And then we have um, psychic evolution, which is the evolution of psyche. So 
one you could say is more of a vertical type evolution, a higher and higher awareness of what's working through us. And the other is the evolution of bodies, which seem to develop more and more comprehensive brains, nervous systems, and means of interacting with uh, greater uh, volumes or magnitudes of the flow of information in the universe. So the first section I'm going to describe for you here to lay the foundation beyond what we've already stated is titled Source, Energy, and In-Formation. Information really means information if you look deeply into it. So before we dive into archaic consciousness, it's important to pre-frame our discussion. What we refer to as the world or planet Earth is a living construct made largely of stone and the elements of earth, water, fire, and air in an alchemical relationship within space that produces life from which sentient beings arise. To exemplify this, let's start with what the word chi means. Now, the word chi in English means life force, life force energy. Uh, you know, without life force energy, you're dead. You have to breathe to produce life force energy. In my holistic lifestyle coaching program, I go into depth on the physiology and, and sort of the electromagnetics and uh, issues of, of the air uh, and how it produces electromagnetic charge in the body. Or you can look at my DVD or video on YouTube titled Nutrition, the Dirt Facts, where I talk about that. But in Chinese, the word qi actually means steam. Now, steam is something that can only happen if you have earth, water, fire, and air. So in, in alchemy, we would say that the pot, remember the earth element, something solid, holds the water under which we place fire, and then we get steam rising due to the action of the fire through the pot, affecting the water, causing the molecules to move so fast that they rise up like a gas. Thus, we have steam. So what you see is that the Chinese referred to qi, which means steam, because we, for example, on a cold morning can see our breath. We know that we're warm inside and we're producing steam. If you look at Steiner's teaching on the ethers, he describes that the etheric forces that are produced by our body are the result of the biochemical reactions within our body, which produce energy themselves that can be used by the body. So I'm really trying to preface that when we're talking about the elements and the alchemical relationships, that they're very important to see as interactions that happen with each other, and those interactions are essential to produce life force energy, which in a more simplistic Chinese medicine approach or in the Chinese language means steam, but now I hope you understand why the elements are necessary to produce steam or life force energy. I've studied a lot of people over the last 35 plus years of my career, everyone from Hippocrates to Paramahansa Yogananda to Margaret Newman, an incredible woman and revolutionary nurse. I have great appreciation and gratitude for all these people who came before me. 
They inspired me, inspired my career, and helped me to reimagine what it means to be healthy. Hippocrates really affected me because his primary dictum, which (laughs) strangely enough is the dictum of the medical system, is first do no harm. So I loved Hippocrates' teachings because he was a man that used about 40 herbs. He had a medicine ball made from a pig's bladder filled with sand that he used with patients, and he was very much into the basic principles of alchemy and really worked to grow his knowledge and to understand life, not just the problems of people such as this isn't working or that's working or, you know, I'm wetting my bed or whatever it might be, but really he looked at people holistically. And he really taught us that there are effective natural means that we should always try first before we go to invasive procedures, which today might be drugs and surgery. I really loved Margaret Newman's teachings when I found them. I was blown away by them. Margaret Newman was a holistic nurse, and she really taught me a very deep lesson about what health really is. She helped me re-evaluate my own ideas of health and what it means to be healthy. And she showed me that sometimes a person may not have good health But if they're handling the challenge in ways that grow them, then they truly are a healthy person. And so uh, I really learned to look more deeply into each individual and help them see their challenges as part of their health creation process. I've been really fortunate to be able to coach a lot of clients who reach and exceed their health goals over the years, And I hope that for many of you listening, the Czech Institute has been able to inspire you and educate you to do the same. But there's still so much more to be done. There's a lot to be discovered about human health, how we can heal the world and each other. And it's up to you, the next generation of coaches, thinkers, and innovators to become the new leaders in holistic health and continue to reimagine what it means to be healthy and how we can reach our true human potential. So to help support all of you in becoming the next generation of leaders, over the coming weeks, I'll be releasing some short videos on influential figures in holistic health, people that have inspired me, and I bet they'll do the same for you. I will be releasing two special solo podcasts on the past and future of holistic health, and I think you're really going to love them. And finally, on Black Friday, I'll be holding a special 20% discount on all the original Czech products plus even greater discounts on new courses and packages. All of the skills you'll learn in these courses serve me very well over my career, and I know they'll do the same for you. At least that's my dream. Keep an eye out on Instagram and on the Czech social media channels for updates on all of these events. Now let's get back to the podcast. I love the podcast. Hope you're enjoying it. Now if we look at the Earth, the Earth is akin to a cork floating in an infinite sea of energy and information. That energy and information is in a perpetual state of flow, emerging from what quantum physicists describe as the zero-point field. Here, the emptiness of the absolute, or which we, we could refer to as source, all caps, meets the fullness. So the emptiness of absolute source meets the fullness of absolute source. So uh, that might be a bit confusing, but 
we look out at the stars and we see the space is very empty. A vacuum's empty. But within the emptiness of space, there are objects such as planets, stars, moons, asteroids. And so that would relate to the fullness. So we know that the two qualities of the zero-point field are that it contains a lot of emptiness and it contains a fair number of objects which we look at and count using the science of cosmology. And this interaction between the emptiness and fullness is producing perpetual energy and information flow that both energizes and informs all that we call life or the universe. So to, to recap, there is an interaction between the emptiness, what Plotinus referred to as the vacuum, and he said the vacuum is not empty, it's also a plenum. It is constantly producing activity, and within that activity we have things, planets, moons, stars, beings, people, etc. So equally important is that many highly uh, credentialed and credible scientists have demonstrated very clearly that the experiences that each and all sentient beings are having are in a real-time feedback loop with the entire universe, and that the intercommunication between the universe and sentient beings happens at the speed of now, a real-time uh, exchange of energy and information. Now, a lot of people are very unaware of these sciences, um, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and, you know, the typical mainstream scientists don't really talk about this. You have to get into the ones that are braver and willing to risk their careers, but do very, very beautiful science. And many of these people are highly decorated scientists that just <laughs> decided to tell the truth as their research showed it. And to, to really support you in understanding this, an excellent hot-off-the-press book uh, or resource to explore what I'm sharing here in this regard is Irvin Laszlo's newest book titled Reconnecting to the Source, the New Science of Spiritual Experience, How It Can Change You and How It Can Transform the World. And so for those of you that are not familiar with Irvin Laszlo, he is quite a genius and he is a highly regarded scientist, systems theory expert, a very evolved spiritual teacher, he began in his youth as a concert pianist. He's clearly an enlightened man. He's made many advances in science, and he's written probably around 25 books. I've read many of them, and they're all very, very good. And he's highly, highly respected amongst the most elite scientists in the world, and many of them refer to his, uh, to his work. So to begin this series, I'd like to remind you that the universe is living in and through each of you and that you are living in the universe, and that is the nature of love. To understand archaic consciousness, we must look to the elements that embody life and produce the magic of our biochemistry. So as I share here, it is important to realize that much of the metaphysical truths I share are based in metaphor, and we are tasked to use our minds and our imaginations to see how metaphor expresses it in our day-to-day -day lives. So instead of getting caught up in the narrow confines of literalism, it is best to perceive the elements I'm referring to here as octaves of energy and information flow, like the colors of a rainbow or the layers in a cake. 
well, you know, part of the problem that we all face is that we're so heavily left brain oriented due to the way our academic systems work, literally from kindergarten all the way through to the highest level of degrees. And we're in a scientific materialistic society that only values what can be weighed and measured. But we have to realize that the experience of life is as subjective as it is objective. And so the, the, the more you study the great scientists, the, you know, the people that really get into the things, whether it be Wolfgang Pauli, Fred Hoyle, or uh, Albert Einstein, or um, Nassim Harriman, or uh, you know, a long, long list of them, you'll see that the more advanced ones are not afraid to use metaphor and are actually quite poetic because poetry and metaphor can explain things in ways that literal explanations just are, are too lacking. So that shared, please realize that the mystery and the metaphor exists deep within the standard scientific model of cosmology, for no scientist can define what caused the Big Bang. They leave a gaping hole behind their objective science and simply ignore it. While the mystics and metaphysicians dive deeply into the mysteries that continue to elude the scientific materialist mind. So we're going to begin now with fire. And I'm going to explain how metaphysics explains how everything gets created. And for those of you that are interested in a beautiful, absolutely gorgeous uh, television series on this, look into Teresa Bullard's Mystery Teachings on Gaia TV. Teresa Bullard Mystery Teachings. She is a physicist and she's done many mystery school trainings, runs her own mystery school trainings. She's done extensive study in alchemy, Kabbalah, and many of the related uh, fields of religion and metaphysics, and she's a very well put together human being. Her brain fires on all cylinders, as the mechanics would say. So we'll start with fire. Fire begins with the invisible fire that moves the archetypes, which are primal ideas, examples of which are yin, the feminine, or emptiness, yang, the masculine, or fullness, space, time, and movement into existence. So fire is the invisible that moves the archetypes such as yin, emptiness, feminine, yang, masculine, fullness, space, time, and movement into existence. In fact, Itzhak Bentov, another amazing scientist and researcher who invented the pacemaker and wrote the phenomenal book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum, says that there are three correlates to consciousness, which are space, time, and movement. And those are archetypes. They express themselves anywhere that issues of space, time, or movement are uh, valid. And Bentov shows that you cannot be conscious without those three requisites or prerequisites, if you will, space, time, and movement. The Kabbalists and others inform us that at the first level of manifestation of life and the universe, it emanates from fire. The fire is the energy and information flow that enlivens the primal archetypes that establish the patterns that will be 
next informed by mind. Examples of primal patterns or archetypes that are essential to life and consciousness at this level are the ones I've just shared, space, time, movement, emptiness, yin, fullness, yang. And all of these are related to the first fire or the fire of source. The alchemists describe the different classifications of fire, but the Kabbalists in this regard are referring to what the Kabbalists or the alchemists would uh, call celestial fire. So I'll give you a description of some of the fire uh, types that are relevant to this origin story that I'm sharing with you because it relates to archaic consciousness. Celestial fire, the brilliant white fire that issues forth from the one mind of God. And when I use the word God here, remember I'm using the word God to encapsulate pure potential source or the zero point field. And I use that word with capital G, capital O, capital D to distinguish it from capital G, little O, little d, which is really people's ideas about God. Um, long discussion to be had there, but we'll avoid that one for the moment. Dennis William Huck, a famous alchemist and author, states, the celestial fire is very pure, simple, and not burning in itself. It has for its sphere the ethereal region whence it takes, excuse me, whence it makes itself known even to us. Celestial fire shines without burning, and it is without color and odor. It is gentle and known only by its operations. Then we have central fire. The celestial fire passes into the nature of the central fire. It becomes internal, engendering in matter. The celestial fire is lodged in the center of matter. It is tenacious and innate in matter. It is digesting, maturing, and neither warm nor burning to the touch. So I'm referring to Dennis William Huck's book, The Complete Idiot Guide, Idiot's Guide to Alchemy. You can find out about the different fires on page 90 uh, and 91. So just to clarify, if there's any confusion, what I'm talking about really is a metaphysical explanation of what's moving creation into existence. What is it that's causing all the subatomic particles to randomly pop out of vacuums that scientists keep seeing and measuring? And, you know, basically the scientific explanation is is that the zero-point field is, is really just vibrating at a wickedly high rate and it produces... Uh, subatomic particles that become atomic particles then become larger objects such as planets, moon, moons, stars, uh, and everything else you see out there. But really this discussion is description of the celestial and the central fire is saying, well, this is what's moving that, shall we say, emptiness to froth or bubble up. Now the Kabbalists or Kabbalists is, is, is how it's often said, teach us that fire steps down to air, which is the next octave of vibrational density and the source of mind. Mind creates our ability to perceive all that can be known and to create within the matrix of life as co-creators with the universe. Now, for those of you that have studied the yogic teachings on the meaning of OM, capital A, capital U, capital M, underscore, 
you will find it congruent with many other great teachings on mind and what mind is, such as Taoist teachings, which are very good. Buddhist teachings on mind are, are excellent. And there's others, such as uh, Dr. Daniel Siegel, a psychiatrist whose teachings on mind are very good. So really what they're saying is that from fire, and we've referred to the celestial fire becoming the central fire, the next vibrational level down, or we could say octave down, is the source of which we have the manifestation of mind. Now there's multiple ways to slice this. I could take you on a different journey using a different kind of cultural viewpoint. But really what I'm trying to do is just give you a, a, a functional story about how this stuff all happens. Air steps down in vibration to water. Water is the element linked to the emotional feeling tones that we experience within ourselves so we can feel the products of our mind and sense when we are creating love and connection or fear and disconnection. Where air relates to the mental realm or what's called the noosphere, water links to the astral realm, which is the vibrational realm within the whole that mediates between the cosmos, the outside world, and the soul's activity in the body. The astral realm is also considered the intermediary realm between the spiritual realm, the realm of causative forces, and the consciousness empowering them, and the physical world which our bodies exist in. It is the astral realm in which we dream and experience our dreams, and this realm provides the energetic experience we attribute to our desires and emotions. In other words, uh, spiritual researchers such as Steiner and uh, Barbara Brennan and a long, long list of them say, and I have my own experiences of these things myself, but I'm uh, just referring to names that are, are famous for their work. But what they're saying is that we actually gain the experience of what we call desires and emotions from the realm that is referred to as the astral realm. Steiner describes the astral realm as negative relative to our physical body, which is positive, and therefore you see a, a polarity differential, which allows energy and information to move. To move. The astral realm is a vast realm, much more vast than, than the domain of our physical universe, the matter of which only accounts for about 4% of the energy in the known universe, and is a realm of animated embodied light. It is called the astral realm because the light seen by people who become conscious in this dimension is akin to the light of stars. And I can assure you of that. I do a lot of work in the astral realm. It's part of my work when I'm reading people's energy fields or any healer is. They're actually working with the astral realm. So it's... Um, it, you know, this stuff used to be airy-fairy, but today with the advances in science and people like William A. Tiller putting hard science to these things and Valerie Hunt's book, Infinite Mind, she was the first one to scientifically validate the chakra system. Um, I mean, there's I have so many books on this. Cynthia Dale, uh, the Encyclopedia of Subtle Energy Anatomy goes into this and has many scientific resources backing it. So... Hopefully, you can, for those of you that aren't familiar with the science, can enjoy the story because <laughs> without stories, we can't make meaning. 
Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their Red Juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi Red Juice is actually significantly more cost-effective considering not only the price, but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this Red Juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase C-H-E-K-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products. My family's tested their products, and we're all behind them. And I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, CHEK20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, Share it with as many people as you can. So, fire steps down to air. Fire, i.e. that which moves archetypes into action, which are then manifest as energy and information flows through what we call mind, which is related to the air element, steps down to water. Water is related to our emotions in the astral realm, and water steps down to earth. Earth is the element of the lowest vibration or the greatest level of entangled light. It is the realm in which the dream of great spirit is embodied in the 3D world of the physical, the one you're in. The earth element includes all material things from subatomic particles with mass to atoms to stones to soil or anything earth-like. It is where the archetype, for example, of the tree expresses itself in and as treeness. So the archetype, which is a potential, we could say in the mind of the universe, or we could go behind that and say it's a potential in the absolute or in source. So the archetype then is moved by the fire element down into the air element or mind to express the flow of energy and information that produces treeness. Then it flows down closer to the earth element through the astral realm, which would carry the imprint or the information that will then be embodied 
through the earth element. So where the soul experiences itself in space, time, and form, or physical bodies, our body is informed by air or mind or water and emotions and all of that formed the earth. So what I'm trying to point out here is that water steps down to earth, so the element of the earth being the lowest vibration is really the embodiment of the dream. And if you study the uh, teachings of Hinduism, the Vedas, uh, you will see that in that philosophy or way of relating, they say that God is dreaming everything into existence. The name for the dream is Maya, the grand illusion. So the action of dreaming would correlate to the fire, the celestial fire, which you could say is the universal fire, the central fire, which steps itself down to the air element, as the alchemist would call it, the next octave down, which produces mind, the idea of the tree, in which the archetype takes expression as the flow of energy and information, which steps itself down into the water element, where we have emotion, and we have feelings, and we have the negative imprint of what becomes the physical tree, which ultimately manifests itself as a tree in the earth, the earth element. Now, the earth element is unique and that it is the one element that contains the elements of fire or warmth, air and water within it, as all are necessary to animate life as we know it on earth. The earth is our home and it is the product of the fire element, the burning of stars, and is suspected to have originally been part of our sun. So the burning of the sun would be a different fire. That would be the standard fire that we use and that we know of, you know, you now it's a much hotter fire, it's an atomic fire, but it still would be uh, similar to the fire that we talk about when we're talking about fire, like a blowtorch. Now, these are these kinds of concepts you have to work with. I mean, the fire of the sun is you know, very hot plasma. So it's uh, certainly fire, but I doubt any of you have a plasma fire in your fireplace where you would burn extremely hot. So moving forward, the beginning of life on earth starts with the minerals, stones, which become the basis of the earth or soil and the formation of water. So now I'm, I'm going to go down more into the sort of the standard elements as you would think of them as earth that you're standing on, water that you drink, fire, warmth, uh, the fire that we know of, fireplaces, metabolism, and air that we breathe. So some interesting things to think about here. Within the earth, there are massive amounts of crystals. Quartz is our most common mineral on this planet. Quartz is made of two of the most abundant chemical elements on Earth being oxygen and silicon. Atoms of oxygen and silicon join together as tetrahedrons, which are three-sided pyramids. 
these stack together to build crystals. Billions of tetrahedrons are uh, needed to build even a small crystal. Quartz is an almost pure chemical compound with constant physical properties. Quartz itself makes up about 12% of the land's surface and about 20% of the Earth's crust. Most of the remaining um, crustal rocks are rich in silicate minerals, which include silicon, oxygen, together with other elements. Now, we stand up straight because our body has a skeleton made of calcium phosphate crystals. We keep our balance thanks to calcite crystals, which are found in, a, in the inner ear, our inner ear. And we chew with teeth that are made of apatite crystals, uh, microcrystals. Tooth enamel is the hardest and most mineralized substance in the body. It is 96% crystals and 4% water and proteins. This high mineral content gives it resistance and hardness, as well as its color and shine. I share this information to help you understand that crystals within the earth and our bodies have a very wide range of frequency reception and transmission. The earth and our body are perpetually receiving and transmitting cosmic energy and information, and through the medium of earth, the archetypes or ideas that inform life are embodied and animated in concert with the influences of fire, air, and water. So we're right back to the basis of life force, steam, which requires earth, water, fire, and air. Now, remember what I said earlier, the earth is like a cork floating in an infinite ocean of energy and information. So what I'm trying to drive home here is that the ideas of life on earth are present potentially everywhere in the universe, but they're available through the zero-point zero field as flows of energy and information. Now remember, crystals for a long time were used in radios, and that's how you tuned into frequencies, various stations, for example, and those frequencies are amplified so that your speaker plays what is transformed from the wave into voice or sound. So when you look at how crystals work, what, what I'm telling you is that the entire earth is really a giant crystalline structure that turns out to be the perfect conduit for the flow of vast flows in a vast range of frequencies of energy and information that is literally bubbling, bubbling out of space like you know, froth on beer from every single point in space. It obviously has aggregates because here we are on the Earth and it's a lot of emptiness between here and the moon, for example, but scientists have shown very, very clearly that even empty space is bursting with energy. Um, in fact, uh, when I was at the field conference, Lynn McTaggart, and I think she has this book in her book, The Field, uh, there's actually enough energy in one cubic centimeter of space to boil all the oceans on this earth instantly. Nassim Harriman says one cubic centimeter of empty space actually contains more energy than all the matter in the entire universe, which is mind-boggling. But that's how much energy, density, there is in empty space. Irvin Laszlo talks a lot about this 
in his book on the Akashic Field. And so those you want to get deeper into that can get into that. But it's when you, you know, part of the reason I'm sharing these things, when you realize what's going on here, my God, it's freaking mind-blowing. I mean, we get so used to being in this miracle that we forget it is a miracle. And the fact that you're walking around in space that is literally just jacked with energy and information, but it seems empty to you, um, should be quite mysterious in and of itself. And that's one of the reasons that holistic living is so important. That's one of the reasons spiritual practices are so important. Because as you, A, live holistically and get your body healthy, your range of reception and perception grow, and you get to begin to have experiences, particularly through spiritual practices, where the invisible starts to become visible. And this is one of the reasons we have some people that can see ghosts. I can see them. I am a person that can see them. Um, we have some people that can read Akashic records. We have some people that are clairvoyant. I'm fortunate to have clairvoyance. We have some people that can read energy fields. So when a patient comes to me, I don't have to look in their chart. I can look into their energy field and usually identify fairly quickly what's going on. But these things happen to me after years and years of carefully managing my diet and lifestyle and doing a lot of meditation, Tai Chi, Qigong, and other related practices that fine-tune me. So I had the sensitivity, and countless is the number of people I've been able to help with methodologies and approaches that the standard medical model would deny are, are real and would call people like me quacks. But thank God for quacks because they save a lot of people from the non-quacks <laughs> or help the ones that they can't help. So that's a, a pretty potent reality that we're floating in this massive sea of energy and information on a giant crystalline structure. And as I've just highlighted, and we'll highlight more, our bodies are full of crystals. And I've got more to share on that coming up, which is quite amazing. But I'd like to point out some recent research to show you that there are things going on here that modern science can't explain. In fact, it doesn't want to explain them because it means it has to rewrite all its textbooks. And this discussion has been had countless times by elite scientists. So I'm going to highlight research on our connection to the sun. And I think I mentioned this in my podcast with Dawson Church a little while back. In his mind-blowing book titled Life Force, The Scientific Basis by physicist Claude Swanson, PhD, page 357 and 8, he cites research showing our direct connection to the sun. So what happened is an acupuncturist, a man who is an expert at acupuncture, and I believe the research was done in Japan, coupled his scientific instruments where he measured the energy flow through acupuncture meridians after he'd put needles into people's bodies. And he simultaneously monitored using support from NASA real-time information about solar activity on the sun. And what he found out was mind-boggling. He found out that there was a zero time lag 
between solar flare activity and increased energy moving through the meridian system of a human body. So to sort of encapsulate what I'm saying, he would put an acupuncture needle into a meridian. He would monitor the fluctuations of energy, which he could monitor directly from that needle, while simultaneously monitoring solar flare activities, which was gained by information from NASA's deep space probes monitoring the sun, and he found that fluctuations of solar flares on the sun manifest as fluctuations of energy in the human meridian system, therefore body, instantaneously, which means we are directly connected to the sun, and it is a challenge for the standard model of physics because photons moving at the speed of light take eight minutes to get here from the sun, yet he showed that the action in our body in reaction to the sun was instantaneous. Now, Claude Swanson's book has all sorts of studies like that. Um, if you listen to my interview with Dawson Church, he's writing a new book and he's sharing a lot of research that really shows us that we are very deeply connected to the entire universe and that a lot of the ways we think about ourselves and life are very, very worse than outdated because I'm quoting from my studies on alchemy and alchemy goes back thousands of years and they were hip to all this. So were the Kabbalists and, and the Sufis and many others. And if there's great, I've got great books in my library. Uh, one of them is called Universal Sufism. I don't have the author's name on the top of my mind, but they do a beautiful explanation of these kinds of things using slightly different language, but basically saying the same things. So now we go to the water element. Water has been found to be formed in the depth of the earth via crystals and very high pressures. Once water matures, it rises to the surface of the earth in artesian wells. Victor Schauberger gives the comprehensive description of how that happens in his uh, teachings on water, which you can find by searching his name. Um, one of the primary translators of his work is a man named Callum Coates. Now, interestingly, water and blood have both been found by researchers to be liquid crystalline substances. This means that water and blood are both excellent for receiving and sending information of a vast array of frequencies. You can learn much more about this and water in general in the excellent book titled Dancing with Water, The New Science of Water, Second Edition by M.J. Pangman, P-A-N-G-M-A-N, and Melanie Evans. If you're it's a great book. So if you're interested in this stuff, check it out. As previously shared, the water element is linked to our ability to feel and experience our emotions. And remember, the word emotion means E-motion, energy in motion. Our emotions are the flow of energy and information through us, which we assign meanings, and we use language such as anger or sadness or joy or bliss. But those are really names for different types of energy and information flow that turn out to be quite common between not only us, 
but animals and even lower animals. If you look into the studies and look at uh, uh, Cleve Baxter's research, for example, or read the book, The Secret Life of Plants and, and those types of resources, which I share a lot of in my podcast series titled The Honest Vegetarian that I did with Matthew Walden. Water research shows that water molecules are some of the most sensitive to vibration and sensitive to an incredibly wide frequency range. So interestingly, water turns out to be an amazing antenna. It can pick up a really wide range of frequencies. Water has been shown by research to have an almost infinite capacity for memory and is used as the hard drive in the world's most powerful computers. Greg Braden recently, in his Gaia TV show Missing Links, highlights current research showing that water isn't actually carrying the memory and information within itself, but acts as an interface within fields of information. Some would refer to these fields as morphic fields, and Rupert Sheldrake has researched morphic fields extensively and brought them to light in current scientific thought. So when we look at the water element, you can see that it's very, very important to life. You cannot have biological life without water. And water is super, super sensitive to, the, to an extremely wide range of frequencies. And so if you remember that everything in the created universe is the flow of energy and information, and what we call mind is, the, is really that which expresses energy and information or works with it or computes it, if you will. Um, and then if you go back further, then behind mind, we, we talked about the fire element, and that would be the dynamic energy within the zero-point field itself the action of which would be mind. The intermediary experience would be the astral realm. So between our mind and our body is our emotions. In other words, our body is made of the things we eat and elements of the earth, the periodic table of elements, for example. It's atomic. But the inert matter interfaces with our mind and is tied together through the astral realm which is what allows us to experience our emotions. So now if we look at the air, over time, with water accumulation and changes in our atmosphere through sea, plant, and tree life, we gain air, which is essential for all living creatures, with the exception of some anaerobic bacteria. By volume, air contains 78.09% nitrogen, 20.95% oxygen, and 0.93% argon, and about 0.04% carbon dioxide, and small amounts of other gases. Air also contains a variable amount of water vapor, on average around 1% at sea level, and 0.4% over the entire atmosphere. So air, and, and, and I'm referring to oxygen, turns out to be the most essential nutrient for our survival, we breathe, on average, 25,900 breaths a day. And interestingly, I first learned this from Steiner, but as I'll point out in a minute, there's other people that talk about this. That's 25,900 is the approximate number of years it takes to complete what is sometimes referred to as the great year. 
And the great year is the path of the earth's north pole projected into the heavens, which describes a circle which takes 25,772 years to complete. So if you just imagine the earth, it's on, a, I believe, a 23-degree axis. So our axis is tilted 23 degrees. So as the earth is spinning, if you imagine just spinning a top, I'm sure you've seen that when you spin a top, as it starts to slow down, its axis starts to lean and it starts to wobble. And if you could imagine a laser pointer pointing out of the top of the top along the axis, as it started to wobble, it would draw a circle on the ceiling. So it's interesting that we breathe almost exactly the number of breaths per day that the earth takes to complete one great year or that 23 degree axis going through a period of 25,772 years, actually, if you imagined a laser beam sticking out of the Earth's North Pole, would paint a circle in the heavens, if you will. Why this is important, why I'm bringing it up, is because it's just one way of showing that the rhythms in our body are shall we say, mathematically correlated to many, many rhythms in the earth, the planets, and the stars. The alchemists spoke of this quite extensively. Uh, If you study alchemy with any level of depth, you will find all sorts of stuff on this. Um, There's also many such correlations cited by the yogis of antiquity, the aboriginal people, ancient Egyptians, all to clearly demonstrate the deep intimate connection between the earth, the sun, the galaxy, and indeed the entire universe and man. When we lose sight of such facts, we lose our truly holistic sense of our origins, our true belonging, and therefore who and what we really are. Today, the result of losing our connection to the whole is consumerism. We're desperately trying to fill a spiritual void with material objects And the cost of filling our spiritual void with objects um, is one that is very high to nature. We are uh, destroying the planet by constantly trying to entertain ourselves and fulfill ourselves with more and more gadgets and more and more stuff because we're removing resources far, far faster than we're replacing them and letting them regenerate. So such amazing correlates between the universe, earth, and man have been well described by Rudolf Steiner and Joseph Campbell in their teachings as well as others. Our beginnings as human beings cannot be separated from the universe, the sun, the earth, our moon, nor other planets in our solar system. The alchemists have extensive knowledge of these connections and use that knowledge to both create magic with chemistry and as a deep non-sectarian approach to legitimate spiritual development and the attainment of higher consciousness. In his excellent book titled Dreams, Death, Rebirth, A Topological Odyssey into Alchemy's Hidden Dimensions, psychology professor and alchemist Stephen M. Rosen beautifully describes how our intuition, again one of Jung's four functions, is linked to the mineral kingdom of the earth and also how this phase of our development relates to both our gut system and our capacity for sensation, which is also one of Jung's four functions. So to review them, they are thinking and feeling, which are counterbalancing each other 
sensation, and intuition. So now let's talk about intuition and the earth. I've kind of laid the foundation for where I'm trying to take you here. And now we're going to start getting right down into some very practical aspects of what it means to be holistic and how we were holistic. And hopefully that is being borne out here in the things that I'm sharing with you. Because really, (laughs) if you want to just put it plain and simple... We are the earth, we are water, we are fire, and we are air. And we exist because there's a balance. And that balance is expressed in the interaction of those elements within which our biochemistry exists. And to the degree that we damage everything outside of us in the earth and can no longer gain the essential nutrients or the quality of water or quantity of water needed, to keep that biochemistry functioning optimally, then we begin to diminish our capacity to produce life force energy, which quite simply means we start to die and we die slowly. So now what I like to do is get into the connection between intuition and the earth. And I've already sort of highlighted it, but I'll reiterate it again, because a lot of people that talk about intuition, even people with great intuition, and I've seen many interviews with people like this and read many books, don't actually know where intuition comes from. So I'm excited to help you understand that. So now that we are getting into intuition and the earth, I'm going to talk a little more about crystals. Forgive me if I'm redundant. I'm saying some things repeatedly to help them sink in, and sometimes I'm changing the context of how I present the information so you can see it more holistically, since that's important and that's the theme here. As I've said earlier, crystals are excellent conductors of a wide range of frequencies, such as radio waves, light, and even psychic energies, as most healers are aware. They also produce piezoelectric charges when compressed. A piezoelectric charge, for those of you that are not familiar with that, is a charge produced by any material called an electret. So uh, an electret is a material that, when deformed, produces an electrical charge, which you might find interesting to know that the fascia, the connective tissue of your body, is an electret. So whenever you move, for example... In my scientific stretching course, I show you that stretching actually produces um, electrical energy, which we call life force in the body that can be used by the body. The crystal functions as an envelope detector, rectifying the alternating current radio signal to a pulsing direct current, the peaks of which trace out the audio signal so it can be converted to sound by an amplifier connected to any speaker. So that's just really kind of a very tight succinct explanation of how crystals are used in radios and they're used to this very day in many, many electrical technologies from computers to radios to exotic stereos and many other things. The point I'm driving at here is that the earth itself is a giant receiving and sending device which both receives and sends a vast array of cosmic signals, cosmic information, used to both inform nature and all life within nature and to broadcast an equally vast array of information signals into the universe, creating a real-time feedback loop, as I previously described 
um, with the sun and the acupuncture research. Through this crystal system of the earth and the construction of our bodies, we are blessed with the ability of intuition. We can ask questions of any sort, and if we are clear enough, i.e. not blocked or afraid of the answers, and free enough from our own ego programming, we can receive the answers. Intuition provides the information that sensation, values, and thinking does not provide. It draws on the whole, or what Larry Dossey, MD, refers to as the one mind in his excellent book titled One Mind. If you understand this premise, then it should come natural to realize that with all the crystalline structures in your body, from your bones and teeth to the liquid crystalline functions of water and blood, that our body is an incredibly complex antenna system capable of tuning into the whole cosmos, affording us information not available through sensation, and sensation deals with your five senses. So sensation is essentially the information you can get via your nervous system, smell, touch, taste, sight, hearing, and so on. Thinking, processing information in your head or um, drawing on information from the collective, or feeling. So intuition then is unique because it can provide information that sensation, sensation, thinking, and feeling cannot. This is why, for example, when you study the biographies of great scientists like Einstein and many others, they often mention that they had an intuition that led them ultimately to developing a theory that often turned out to be validated through hard science. So great scientists all over the world outright state that intuition is really one of the key ways they figure things out. It is this very capacity of intuition that allows healers to intuit what is wrong with you. It is also the capacity we each have, if we develop it, to intuit not only how to live well, but keep ourselves healthy, learn the mysteries of life, and be in service to those less developed than we are. Intuition draws on the whole. It is therefore truly holistic. Now, I'm highlighting this because what I'm showing you is that archaic consciousness, which is really, in, 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 in the way we think about consciousness, an unconscious process, is actually woven into us, which is why I've stated how much crystals there are in the earth and how much of it make up your bones and your teeth and the fact that your that water is a liquid crystalline substance and that blood is a liquid crystalline substance. So really what I'm saying to you is that the earth is in constant communication with the cosmos and that we are made of the elements of the earth and that our bodies being made of the elements earth, water, fire, and air in space are actually very complex antenna systems that allow us to pick up a wide variety of information that allow us to do miraculous things. And our intuition is really accessing the 
archaic consciousness that produced life on earth, just like your unconscious digests, metabolizes, assimilates, eliminates your food. And even the greatest scientists in the world, with all the knowledge they have, would admit that there's more by far than that we don't know than we do know. So the mystery of consciousness is still very, very vast and wide open. But we know from paying attention and using our intuition and uh, paying attention and looking at what science has shown us, that archaic consciousness is the foundation of really the entire construct of how the idea of life, the idea of plants and animals and uh, organisms in general and human beings manifests itself in the domain of the earth. Now, linked to the archaic level of consciousness is sensation and our gut system. Now, this is, is a really interesting and important part of the discussion that I'm sharing with you here because now we can get past some of the kind of, you know, mystical, metaphysical elements and things like intuition, which for a lot of people is sort of, you know, something that they don't really understand very well. But we can get into some of the things that we all use every day and also have a lot of problems with, such as our ability to sense and our gut system. If you don't think people have the challenges for the ability to sense, then just look around at all the obesity, um, look at all the eating disorders, look at all the metabolic syndrome, look at all the chronic diseases, and look at all the cancer and realize that cancer typically takes about 10 plus years to to develop in the body, meaning from the time you have one cancer cell in your immune system can't fight it off to the time you go get a diagnosis is often about 10 years. But in the meantime, having worked with many such patients, I can tell you that all sorts of changes in their sensation, whether it be taste, smell, sight, hearing, etc., there was indicators. And these indicators correlate to archaic consciousness and our lack of connection to it, i.e. our lack of holism. So as life evolved on Earth from bacteria, viruses, and fungi to plants, tree life, and then single-celled organisms, it became more complex, producing creatures such as earthworms. All living creatures, be they single-celled organisms or animals of more complex cell combinations, and the worms of the earth have to sense their environment to feed themselves, interact with the environment, avoid predators, and perform their unique alchemical functions in nature. And everything performs a unique alchemical function in nature. In fact, if you listen to uh, Matthew Walden's um, FCO2 podcast, he interviews Lori Keith who wrote The Vegetarian Myth, and she does a beautiful job of explaining how cows are essential, the consumption of grass, and how, it's, how the cows eat it is very, very essential to the production of what we know of as topsoil, which is essential for the growth of all living plants that we eat. Then you can look, for example, if you study nature, you can find out all sorts of wild things. 
for example, most of us are irritated by mosquitoes and think they're useless creatures, but my research showed that indeed mosquitoes actually in their larva state are in the streams and rivers and they eat impurities out of the water out of which they grow their bodies so they actually function as water filtration systems. So here's a very interesting alchemical function. And, and if you study nature, you'll find this is happening everywhere. Now, Gebser and other researchers, such as Jung, have correlated our sensory conscious functions of sensation to this early time period of development of life on Earth, which incorporated beautifully into our more modern, highly complex bodies. Sensation, as a function of consciousness, tells you what something is. For example, its shape, its temperature, its texture. You know, think of if you had no sensation, sex would be completely boring. It's because of sensation that sex is so exciting. It's actually because of sensation that eating is very exciting. I mean, many of us are very texture-oriented. Some people don't like uh, sea urchin, for example, if they go to, to eat sushi because they just cannot stand that slimy feeling in their mouth, but others have no problem with it. Um, some like salty and crunchy. I love popcorn because it's salty and crunchy. If I ate popcorn that was mushy, it wouldn't be exciting. And these are all the functions of sensation. When we wear underwear, we don't want them to be uh, brittle and sharp. A lot of people don't like the feeling, for example, of wool on their skin. It drives them nuts because our sensory functions are telling us what is or isn't compatible to us. Children have to learn what sharp is usually they get cut and they learn. They learn what fire is. They learn what the smell of poop is versus the smell of cake. This all comes by way of sensation. So what I'm sharing with you here is all the way to the very beginning of life, right down to the bacteria. And there's amazing information now about bacteria and viruses and fungi. They have these sensory functions and they're the basis of everything in the taxonomic tree above them. So everything tracks back to viruses, bacteria, and fungi, which have sensory functions. They sense their environment. Now, worms and the serpentine movement of worms and snakes is linked to the aspect of ourselves and life that most of us today are unaware of. And so here are some examples of aspects of ourselves that link to earthworms and snakes that most people aren't aware of. When we look at it physically, our entire gut system from our mouth and throat, the process of swallowing to digestion, peristalsis, to elimination, which is also peristalsis, is in continuous movement, and this movement is snake-like in many regards. There was a great uh, show um, by a British medical doctor. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the show. He was the first one to show video footage of the entire organ system inside the body. And when you watch the organs move in real time, they look just like seaweed waving back and forth in the ocean. And this has been well known by people that study the visceral system and do visceral manipulation. I've studied 
many, many books on this topic and have uh, done a fair bit of practice working with the viscera. And um, some of my students are, are very developed in their ability to do uh, visceral assessments and visceral manipulation. Uh, it's a specialty of Matthew Sorensen, one of our Australian instructors. So people like that are very aware of this snake-like movement. In fact, as previously mentioned, when we breathe, there are constant fluctuations in the curvature of our, of our spine. Uh, I didn't mention the curvature, but I mentioned breathing. When With inhalation, our spinal curvatures decrease and the spine lengthens. With exhalation, the curves of the spine increase, shortening our spine. So with every breath, the spine alternates its curves so inhalation is like a snake that's straightening and exhalation is like a snake bending its curves. This serpentine movement is directly linked to kundalini energy, which is life force energy, and how it moves through our bodies, which is essential to sustain us. This is well known and documented both in yoga and more advanced modern in investigations into how life force energy moves through us and is linked to our conscious spiritual development. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with ecstatic dance or the practice of shaking. Um, there used to be a whole group of Indians called the shakers who would bring themselves into trance states. You could see many African dance tribes and groups that will use rhythmic oscillating movements to bring themselves into trance states. And shaman do this quite regularly in different cultures. And I've explored it myself and, and uh, can quite easily bring myself into a trance state for shamanic work using rhythmic oscillation type movements or shaking type movements. For those of you that have studied infant development exercise with me or any reputable source, you will be familiar with the intimate connection with the serpentine movement in the infant spinal column and its importance in the integration of the motor system with the glands, organs, brain, and nervous system, as well as the psychological functioning of the individual. Uh, for those of you that want to learn more about that, I recommend the book Wisdom of the Body Moving by Linda Hartley, where she goes through that in quite good detail and shows how essential these infant development movements, which are ultimately serpentine movements, are to our overall integration when we are infants and in our early childhood. When we walk, our spine moves in a serpentine motion. This key motion helps bring blood and oxygen and nutrition into and waste out of our spinal discs and other avascular tissues, which is also uh, tied directly into our breathing functions. The action of reducing and increasing the curves with every breath has a pumping function, the technical name of which is imbibition. So without that pumping function, we don't get the waste and the acidic waste products out of our connective tissues that surround the discs that are avascular, and we don't get the nutrition in. And typically when you see these serpentine movements break down, you get sections of the spine that get stuck either in what's called a flexion dysfunction or an extension dysfunction. So someone with an extension dysfunction, for example, has a reduced lumbar curve, and when they breathe, 
their spine will not reduce its curve effectively in the lumbar spine because they have an extension dysfunction. So when the spine goes, lumbar spine goes into extension, it shortens. When it goes into flexion, it lengthens until it passes the midpoint and then it shortens. But when you're working off your standard curve, which is 32 to 35 degrees in the lumbar, thoracic, and cervical curves in a normal healthy spine, as you inhale, that 32 degree curve reduces. So we might go down to 15 degrees. And as you exhale, that curve increases and it might go to 32 to 35 degrees. It's not a huge motion, but it's very noticeable. It's palpable. In fact, all you got to do is go lean against a wall or a post, put your back, your sacrum, your back and your head against the wall and take a deep belly breath and you will notice that your spine lengthens. You can actually feel your head climbing up the wall. And as you exhale, your curves will increase and you can feel your, your whole spine shortening. The serpentine movement also results in streaming potentials of electromagnetic energy because fascia itself acts similarly to crystals. As I stated before, in fascia, pressure and tension generate energy and information that the body uses, and it uses that energy to direct the healing of injured tissues wherever we have injuries, such as the microtrauma of exercise, or if we have uh, someone has a, a surgical scar uh, any kind of a scar, the way we move our bodies produces tension through the fascia, which creates streaming potentials, which the myoblasts, the fibroblasts, and the myofibroblasts actually follow those streaming potentials, which as a side note is why the science of functional exercise and rehabilitation is so critical, because back in the 80s, when I was developing my skills in rehabilitation clinics, everything was done on machines and they were extremely protective of people, especially post-surgical patients. And so what happened is you get these random scars that are not directed by the streaming potentials that are produced by functional movements. So by using tools like the total gym, I could get people to do partial functional movements. So doing a total gym leg press might be as close as I can get to a squat, but I can create streaming potentials by loading the legs that ultimately flow up into the lumbar spine. And at that stage of injury repair can help the discs heal more effectively because the streaming potentials guide and direct the formation of the scar. So it aligns itself with the streaming potentials of the energy, which are directed by the forces of the movement and your body's interaction with gravity. Now, some psychic aspects of worms or the snake-like movement that are important to understand uh, is what I'd like to discuss next. In an amazing book called, set of books actually, called Rivers of Life or Faiths of Man, which I've had for many years and studied quite a lot, J.G.R. Forlong states on page three of volume two that our ancestors worshipped the serpent beginning as far back as five to six thousand years B.C. That's a long time ago. The serpent is featured in countless myths around the world and serpent worship, which appears in cults located almost everywhere in the world from one time to another, is thought to have originated from our primary, primordial fear of deadly snakes. 
but history and myth tells us that there are good as well as deadly snakes. Through the, uh, though the serpent might be linked to evil, it is also a symbol of wisdom, passion, vitality, and the phallus, especially the cobra when it raises and expands its hood. Now, you know, if you think of watching beautiful people, uh, you think of Patrick Swayze, I think it was Dirty Dancing, um, you know, any great dancer, Michael Jackson, uh, you know, serpentine movements are very, very intimate with not only our physiology, but with our psyche. If you see a, a woman, if you're a man, you see a woman gyrating her pelvis, it will trigger off a very strong hormonal reaction, and there will be definite thoughts, feelings, emotions, and desires that are activated by that. So we're, what I'm talking about here is the archaic level of consciousness and the earthworms, early creatures, and then later serpentine creatures, i.e. snakes and lizards and things that move in serpentine patterns, which goes all the way up to us. Uh, and that's why I mentioned how the spine moves when we walk. Now, as shared in his, in his Encyclopedia of Religions, J.G.R. Forlong on page 268 reminds us that all that winds and is long and narrow becomes serpent in mythology. It is the lightning and the stream, the encircling ocean, and the cloud which swallows the waters. Serpents creep into holes and guard hidden treasure. Treasure. They also poison and slay and are found especially in hell. From a modern perspective, our awareness of all things snake-like to the subtle energies of kundalini and its effects on consciousness as it arises, as it rises through the chakras of the human body can be synthesized into a sine wave, which symbolizes frequency. Thanks to science, we are now well aware that everything in the created universe is the product of waves of frequency emanating from the zero-point field, and it turns out that archaic consciousness is the level of consciousness in which life emerges from the elements, but particularly the crystals in the earth and the crystals in our body because they're the ones picking up the flows of energy and information that are then embodied through the biochemistry and the psychology or the psyche of our individual beings or of any being in nature. If we look at a very good definition of consciousness provided by Edward F. Edinger, MD, a psychiatrist and union analyst that he shares in a book titled The Creation of Consciousness, page 32, we see that consciousness is a psychic substance which is produced by the experience of opposites, suffered not blindly, and but in living awareness. Now, I've quoted that on many of my podcasts because it's actually one of the most amazing definitions of consciousness I've ever seen. But remember that what he's talking about is these opposites is the positive and negative cycles of the snake-like wave sign. And we know that from electroencephalogram readings, because when a person's thinking, you get a wave-like readout, just like you do with an electrocardiogram, showing the positive and negative cycles of the heart or systolic, diastolic, electrical activity. Um, but really, everything in the created universe is 
these positive-negative cycles of frequency moving and organizing matter, creating life as we see and know it. And what I'm sharing is that this is all emergent from, at its basic level, archaic consciousness, which is the foundation, as I've shared, of our intuition. It's linked to sensation, and it's linked to feeling, as I've described. So now what I'd like to do is move to the next level of consciousness as it emerges. So Gebser's model goes from archaic consciousness to magic consciousness. Magic consciousness correlates to the ears, to animals and the reptilian brain, our limbic system, and consciousness as sacred, deep listening and also links to fire use and fire worship uh, in that time period of the development of magic consciousness. So with that sort of encapsulation, we will now explore magic consciousness and look at how it relates to the concept of holism or living holistically. For consciousness researcher Gene Gebser, Magical consciousness expresses the emerging of differentiation of the self from world, while at the same time denoting a world where every point is exchangeable with all other points in a vital, magical nexus. This is sometimes referred to as oceanic consciousness, and those of you that have experienced ayahuasca tea will know what it feels like to be in a state of oceanic consciousness. And in fact, most psychedelics, pretty much all of them, if you take enough of a dose, will take you into that magical level of consciousness. And it's, it's, this oceanic consciousness is, is not hard to see if you look at a lot of the art done by artists that have had ayahuasca journeys and depicted the kinds of experiences they have, and you can see how everything is connected. There's no question that they're in a state of deep mergence into nature and their surroundings, and even the psyche that interpenetrates matter. Um, I've seen a lot of this art. It's it's for a guy that's done you know a lot of ayahuasca journeys in his life. It's very, very accurate and telling. In Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness by Jeremy Johnson on page 85, the emergence of magical consciousness is described as follows. As Homo sapiens sapiens was emerging and branching off from archaic Homo sapiens in South Africa, the animal was the sloughed-off environment in the new invisible environment of humanity. Art emerged and became the difference that made a difference between nature and culture, and the first expressions of this division between the given and the gift were mobilary objects, and what he's referring to there is is things like the mobiles that we hang in children's uh, cribs, hanging, moving objects, tools, musical instruments, and then parietal art, which refers to cave paintings and structure. Johnson continues saying that the boundaries between self and the world, culture and nature in this structure are more like a permeable cell wall than a city wall, 
However, and so the consciousness of the magical is marked by its capacity to merge with nature, to slip into trance, or what Immense Barus describes as the plural, or in the plural, as alternations of consciousness. In this stage of human development and the development of consciousness, the emerging personal ego is not yet stabilized, and the labile mind can function in both the dreaming and waking consciousness states at the same time. I'd like to point out that a simple way to appreciate how far we've uh, departed from the abilities provided by the magical consciousness structure um, is seen when trying to drive a car and daydream. <laughs> it can be tricky. You can forget whether the, the light you just went through is green or not, for example. Uh, many of us has found that when engaging in the primordial act of sex with someone that we love, we are both able to be fully immersed in the dream state, the experience of immersion with our partner, and be conscious at the same time. So I'm highlighting the fact that when we do engage acts such as the sex act that are very deep and primal, we can be brought back down into this level of connection with our partner that was really the way we lived in nature all the time. So as you will see in part two of the series, a huge amount of what it means to live holistically is to get back to the ways of living that sustained us in the past, while also being holistic about how we use modern technology. And, you know, when you look at video footage, for example, of African dancers or tribal dancers and their ceremonial rituals and the way they acted out their myths, which we'll talk about, you can see very easily the, the archaic consciousness you see in the way the bodies are moving and breathing and interacting with nature and each other. The magical consciousness you see in the fact that they're using serpentine movements, repetitive movements, gestures, words, rattles, drums, and instruments to bring them into a trance state. And if you watch these dances, a lot of these movements are very, very um, akin to sexual movements like pelvis gyrations. So, you know, what I'm saying here is that we have these abilities in us, but we get too much like white men dancing and become kind of blocks of mass moving around like bodybuilders on a dance floor. Um, and we end up getting, as I'll show you, trapped in our heads, which is very, very dangerous. And I believe that's why we're having this massive uh, re-emergence of a psychedelic culture. I think Mother Nature's uh, coming in an emergency to reconnect us with the nature that we are so unconsciously destroying while thinking that we're conscious uh, with our scientific hubris. Now, during this period, the rock art from cultures like the Aborigines and other images found on rocks and caves, such as images of human beings, were interestingly mouthless. It's quite well established during the period in which magical consciousness emerged, we spent a lot of time dwelling in caves in darkness. Jeremy Johnson encourages us to think back to the world as cave and the importance of acoustic space in the enclosure to sympathetically resonate with voices in the dark. In other words, we didn't see very well in there, but we could hear very well. So we could hear 
the sounds of people's feet striking the ground or stepping in water or even the sounds of mud squishing. We could have heard animals moving, and there were a lot of animals, many dangerous in caves that we had to deal with, such as snakes and cave lions. In this time period of human development and prior, listening was essential to survival. Listening to the sounds of other animals moving, their unique voices, the way the birds are responding to what's in the environment, and even the unique often telling sounds that fire makes. Even listening to natural forces such as wind and rain would have been very important to our survival. Today, when we leave the concrete jungles, we call cities and go out into nature on vacation or on vacation at nature preserves, many of us find ourselves entering into beautiful trance states in which we experience deep connection with nature. When this occurs, we are engaged in magical consciousness within ourselves, and it is truly magical. I believe personally we need more magic and less medical drugs, <laughs> and that means getting back to our holistic roots. I remember once I was on vacation with Vijay McNeil and Penny and we were in Fiji, and uh, Vidya and I were outside. I think we might have been doing art um, in a covered patio, and it began to rain like crazy. And we both just sat there and listened to the music of the rain hitting the tin roof above our heads and the sound of the water hitting the leaves on the trees and dropping from leaf to leaf. And it was like we were in the middle of the most amazing nature orchestra. And I've had many experiences like that working out in nature when I was young in logging camps and uh, working on the farm and various uh, weather situations from being in the dead silence of the snow and hearing the sound that your feet make when you're walking in the snow to the sound of the wind up here at my office at the Heaven House have a huge, beautiful pine tree. And I love to just go be next to it when the wind is blowing because as the wind moves through the tree, it makes this most, most beautiful, soothing, healing sound that moves right through my body and just reconnects me to the depths of nature. And it's just really magical. Now, having emerged from an essentially unconscious unity with nature in the archaic stage of conscious development, human beings would have had deep unconscious awareness of and a capacity to interpret and make meaning of these nature sounds in ways that most of us have lost today. In fact, some language theorists suggest that language as we know it may have come from our early replications of animal sounds and associating those sounds with the body language and facial gestures of the animals that they were interacting with. Our capacity for memory, body posture and gesture, and lyricism, such as emanating the sounds of other creatures to both hunt and communicate with them, played an important role for oral cultures before the predominance of written language. In this time period of our holistic development, remember I'm not narrowing this down to dates. Uh, I don't want to be that academic about it. I really am trying to just convey how holistic our development as human beings 
was and how that holistic development relates to the different functions, be it digestion, elimination, movement of the spine, breathing, movement of energy through the spine and through the body as kundalini, um, our primordial movements such as dance, myth, storytelling, making love, and how a lot of these things are being lost today due to our over-reliance on the mental, and we will get to the mental stage. So in this time period of our development, the essential qualities of our reptilian brain were essential to survival. And, you know, that's a very ancient part of our nervous system. And those qualities of the reptilian brain, as I actually share in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, are safety and security, which relates to safety of one's hunting territory, as well as your own physical safety from other creatures that might want to eat you. And our concern as to whether or not anybody or any other creature is competing for our food, which goes right back, as I said, to our reptilian level of development through the history of human uh, physical development. Sustenance. So first, am I safe? Do I have food? Am I physically safe? Second, now that I'm safe, I can go hunting and feed myself And once I'm safe and I have sustenance, then the next reptilian urge is procreation. Now, one need only look carefully at how people live today to find that they don't have safety and security. They don't pay any attention to whether or not their hunting territory, be it their farming territory or anything is safe. We turn that over to to the state and, and just ignore it. And that's how the government abuses the military and your tax dollar when you're not watching and creates all sorts of stories around why you need to destroy other people. But the issue is is that we are not really paying attention to what truly creates safety and security for us, nor are we paying attention at large to what we're putting into our bodies, where it comes from, and whether or not it even works for us. And such so we have a massive amount of degenerative and chronic disease as a side effect of diet and lifestyle ignorance or uh, contrived ignorance. And we are procreating when we're not safe and we're not well-fed, which has led to the entire field of in vitro fertilization, which I certainly have no problem with if a person has genetic problems or legitimate problems and they're doing the best they can to live in tune with nature and eat healthy and follow the rhythms of nature and the kind of things I teach in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, Uh, The Last Four Doctors You'll Ever Need, How to Get Healthy Now, check Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1, which is available online to anybody and throughout really the whole Czech Institute's programs. So if you're living well and you have a good reason be it biological or genetic, that you can't get pregnant, then in vitro fertilization is there for that. But unfortunately, it's being used to cater to a lot of people that are spending their money on the very problems that are destroying nature. And one of the reasons I'm sharing this whole expose of what holism and holistic health really is. Now, our limbic mammalian brain structure, which is the next level out. So if you look at Paul McLean's work, uh, you can search Paul McLean, the triune brain or the triune mind, triune brain. Um, And I've got his books in my library and I've studied them quite extensively. 
But the next level above the reptilian brain is the mammalian brain, which affords us the awareness of banding together in tribes to increase our chances of survival, increases our success with hunting, and begins to lend itself to specialization within a tribe. Social intelligence is also linked to our limbic system or our limbic level of development. Some may have been better at making clothing, some better hunters, and others more adept at things like tool making. And being together in tribes allowed the very impetus for specialization that we see so well in the world of education and trades today. It is well known that human beings are social creatures, and the most painful form of torture in prisoner of war camps and prisons today is solitary confinement, because it really is painful to be isolated like that. It's Our whole nervous system was wired to be social. Being a fusion of nature and the budding conscious awareness of separability, as demonstrated by the making of art and tools, would have certainly added to the sense of awe and reverence for nature and her power to both create and destroy life in a variety of ways that were very real to us. So what I'm saying here is that as we are growing in our consciousness and we're becoming aware of our separability from nature, we're no longer fused in archaic consciousness. We're starting to become aware that we can do things that other creatures don't do, like making art and making tools. We would have also begun to develop the sense of awe and reverence for nature and we would have recognized that she can create and destroy life in ways that that were very real to us. Now, we still have that today, but we often also delude ourselves into thinking that the way we're abusing the planet can go on forever. And if you're thinking that way, you probably don't think we're abusing the planet. You think, oh, maybe this is just fantastic, as a lot of people do, but a lot of this uh, is really connected to a lack of awareness at the real cost and resource use that it takes to produce things like computers and clothing and all the things that we just sort of flood the earth with and spend money on often, you know, without need, which is, you know, goes against the principles of balance in nature. It is quite likely that this reverence for nature would have inspired acts of worship within us, both as individuals and as groups or tribes. In fact, it is logical to see artistic uh, depictions of hunts and other human functions as acts of worship. And to this day, art is inclusive of worship in religions and human life around the world. Now, Jung's feeling function of consciousness, which relates to one's values and the affects or emotions arising from them, is connected to this period of our holistic development as human beings. Now, I did talk about the feeling function in the archaic stage, but I want to bring up a point. We don't jump from one stage of development to the next and leave the previous stage behind. What you think of as your consciousness right now, call it mental, is only there because you have the crystalline structures in your blood, in your water, in your bones, in your teeth, which are emulations of what is already in the earth. It's because we have microorganisms in our gut. And in fact, 
some researchers say that between 50 and 90% of the cells that make up the human body are not even human. They're symbiotic or non-symbiotic parasitic organisms. Uh, an example of that is that the mitochondria in your cells are actually bacteria that were once not part of our cellular makeup, but we share a symbiosis with them. So they help us produce energy and we give them food. So all I'm sharing here and what I'm really trying to drive forth is that to be healthy and reach your potential in life, which we all need to do together right now before we destroy nature and ourselves, we really need to be conscious of each of these levels of consciousness, how it links to our bodies, how it links to our emotions, how it links to our creativity, and how understanding each of these levels of consciousness and the body parts associated with them and the functions associated with them becomes a very good diagnostic tool. And when you understand what the functions of each of these levels of consciousness is, when somebody's lacking function in those areas of their body and those or those physiological functions, such as the ability to breathe properly, then we know where to look in their life to create the medicine. So for a lot of them out there, a lot of people it could be just spending time in nature and instead of listening to acid rock or nasty screw this, fuck that rap music, listening to the sound of the wind or the sound of water moving across rocks in a creek or a riverbed or the sound of rain or the sound of animals moving. I've listened to a lot of that being raised on a farm and having herds of sheep and moving cows and things like that. When you're young, you don't realize how rich and nourishing these things are to your body and your brain and your psyche. But having traveled all over the world and spent countless hours in airplanes and hotel rooms, believe me, I can tell you, I had many days where I wished I could just jump out into nature and just go listen to cows fart and walk around and chew their cud and the sound of pigs grunting and the wind blowing in the trees and things like that because I really felt how depleted I was at that level of my my body and my emotions and my psyche. And I wouldn't doubt if lots of you have had those experiences after being in cities too long or cubicles or you know just places that disconnect us from the earth. In part two of this series, I will explain some of the facts about how our consciousness has evolved, yet due to circumstances of our tendency to get trapped in the mental level of conscious development has resulted in challenges that disrupt our capacity to remain holistic in our approaches to caring for ourselves, each other, and the planet. So now let's move into mythic consciousness. So we started with archaic, we went to magic, and now we're going to mythic. Uh, the snapshot is that mythic relates to our mouth and speaking, oral communication, manned, man and nature, and sun worship. So this is exciting stuff. I love this stuff. I mean, isn't it amazing to see the profound level of consciousness and beauty in the cosmos? and in nature, and in the earth. And hopefully by now you're beginning to realize that when we lose touch with these levels of our consciousness, 
We lose touch with the parts of ourselves that are correlated to them. And we become people that are empty inside and are trying to fill that void with isms, drugs, junk food, fashion, quick fix technologies, biohacking gimmicks, and all sorts of stuff that I watch going on with (laughs) awe. (laughs) So now getting into mythic consciousness, as we evolved, we reached a place where we told stories to inform us of the key elements of life as the forces or powers of nature, such as lightning, changes in the night sky, and the animal or part animal, part human, and human figures we saw when projecting our consciousness upward, such as looking at the stars. So just think of the um, pictures associated with the constellations of the zodiac, and you understand what I'm talking about, such as Leo the lion, you know, Aquarius the water barrier, Taurus the bull, Cancer the crab. This is our mythologic projections, projecting our psyche onto things such as the stars. Naturally, the telling of stories, the hallmark of the oral tradition of communication and education that existed long before the appearance of written word, depended upon the use of our mouths to create language that conveyed the images we had in our heads. If you go back to the time period in which the mythic level of consciousness emerged, or even look at, as I said earlier, video footage of tribal societies uh, left on earth today or people that are, you know, have those roots such as we see in, in powwows and Indian gatherings all over the world, you can see that myths are often depicted in a combination of musical expression, song, dance, and storytelling. Interestingly, the word myth has its etymological ties to mouth and speech, word or report. As Jeremy Johnson shares, the corresponding verb, moo, means to sound. And I thought that was very interesting because there's a meditation that I practice and teach my students called the moo meditation, which is a Taoist meditation. But I only learned from studying Jeremy Johnson's book that I'm referring to here that moo means to sound, which is really quite cool. In this stage of our development, we had the mythic polarity of speech and silence. So there is a mythic polarity, speech and silence. Most of us are so busy talking inside of ourselves today, we've lost half of the important polarity, which is silence. We also had the visible and the invisible. Our bodies and the bodies of plants, animals, planets, and stars all around us are visible, yet our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, our inner life, are invisible. Gebser associates the mythic level of consciousness with awareness of the soul. As we began to distinguish ourselves from the sky, the backdrop of nature, and the stars and the beings we saw projected to us from them, or you could say that we were projecting on them, we were creating and enacting myths. We were literally telling ourselves stories or being told stories by nature, if you want to take it to that level, and then enacting them. And, you know, I know from studying art, for example, uh, that great artists that do nature paintings will do things like, 
I remember I was reading a book by Rabindranath Tagore, a famous Hindu poet, and he was talking about how a famous artist a long time ago was painting a scene for a king in which there was bamboo. And the king kept pestering the artist for this painting, but the artist said that he had to spend enough time with the bamboo to experience it so he could paint it. And the artist spent three years going out and standing with the bamboo. And when it would be in the wind, he would move his body in unison with the bamboo until he had the experience of the bamboo so deeply in him that he could paint it so it was extremely lifelike. And that's what great artists can do. They, they so immerse themselves through activation of archaic magic and mythic consciousness that they can produce art that almost looks as though it lives and breathes. For example, look at Alex Gray's art and you'll know what I'm talking about. At this time, the soul emerges as persona, which literally means mask. We come to realize that we have two aspects or masks of ourselves. One faces outward, later to become the ego, and one faces inward, which is what we now refer to as the soul or the person or being within us. Naturally, we have myths like the myth of Narcissus and the myth of Narcissus tells the story of who we see when we look into the water and see our reflection, and we are all aware of how we feel about and respond to the person we see in the water or the mirror today, and how we feel and respond is unique to each of us, and such experiences are the domain of one's soul, your inner self, the one that you talk to all the time and talks to you. Your heart will tell you the truth of your soul's experience of yourself, but your programmed ego mind can be and often is very deceiving. And that's where a lot of real healing is focused today, as it was in the past as well. The term soul loss encapsulates the loss of our connection to our soul, and our ego can inflict soul loss itself when it loses touch with the deeper truth of itself and its origins in the cosmos and beyond what can be conceived of in linear time, or via logical frames of reference alone, which is something we're very stuck in today, as I alluded to earlier. We have many myths depicting the motif the motif of deep-sea voyages, such as when on long fishing trips, traversing waters to find new hunting grounds, or migrating, and these myths are linked to man's precarious relationship to and realization of the deep waters of the psyche. Most of us are aware of how big a task it is to truly get to know the depths of ourselves, let alone others. We can be married for 20 plus years, all the while thinking we know them, the other that is, only to find out one day that they've said or done something that's so shocking that we come to realize that we actually don't know them very well at all. We have usually come to know one or more of their personas or masks but only through committed, intimate spiritual growth and love do we ever come to know another's soul. And really, in my opinion, there's no need for churches. All you got to do is 
devote yourself to honest, loving relationships and you'll get a lot more than you can get in any church that's driven by corporate religious ideals. We need myth to help us understand the seemingly infinite sky full of stars, the sky that spontaneously emits bolts of lightning that can start fires and instantly kill any animal or human being it strikes, not to mention the incredible luminosity of a lightning bolt, which can be extremely blinding. I've had lightning bolts <laughs> strike 10 feet from me. I've been on fishing boats when I was a fisherman and had lightning bolts bouncing right off the water. Literally, I could reach out and touch them and it made the hair on my body just stand up and I could feel the heat and the energy off of the lightning bolt. And if that's not enough to make you just go, what the hell's going on? Imagine not understanding what lightning was and having those kinds of experiences and you understand how myths get created. There were earthquakes, periods of famine, long, cold, intense winters, geysers of blistering hot lava and water shooting out of the ground, or even poisonous waters and gases that could kill you quickly or painfully and slowly. There was much about nature that we didn't, couldn't, and needed to understand to survive, and our myths are attempts to explain the unexplainable. And that's a really important thing to understand about myths. They are attempts to explain the unexplainable. In fact, experts in psychology, myth, uh, mythology, anthropology, social health, and related sciences have concluded that when a people loses its myth, it's a very dangerous sign and often leads to a period of mayhem, war, and destruction as a counter-myth emerges and creates tremendous tension within and among people. You may want to listen to my podcast with Jungian professor James Hollis to gain more insights into this issue. We had some very insightful conversations on myth and what happens when a culture's myth breaks down. That was one of my earlier podcasts in 2019. Joseph Campbell, well-respected of one of the world's leading mythologists, identified four essential functions provided by myth. And I, I want to share these with you so that you understand that myth is very important to this very day because we've had so many scholars basically say myths are just stories, they're useless, myth means a lie, we, we use the word myth to depict a falsity or a lie. But having studied myth and mythology for many years of my life, because I found it so important, because ultimately at the end of the day, what have you got without your story? I mean, someone who has Alzheimer's loses their story, and we all know it, it doesn't look good. My grandfather died of Alzheimer's. So when we look at these fun four functions of a myth, I think if you just pay attention to what's going on in the world today, you'll see that we don't have these essential four functions without which any culture or tribe will begin to degenerate. The first function of mythology is to provoke or evoke in the individual a sense of grateful affirmative awe before the monstrous mystery that is existence. The, the second function of mythology is to present an image of the cosmos, an image of the universe roundabout that will maintain and elicit this experience of awe, or to present an image of the cosmos 
that will maintain your sense of mystical awe and explain everything that you come into contact within the universe around you. Now, remember, that doesn't mean it's factually true. It just means that we used myth or story and symbolic representations to do the best with the knowledge that we had to try to make meaning of things. That's the key distinction. And that's what a lot of people investigating myth just can't grasp because they keep trying to look at it as a logical explanation or a rational explanation for what was going on. I mean, imagine reading Moby Dick and trying to analyze it scientifically. It, it would, it's just, it's almost an insult uh, to science and scholars that they are, <laughs> that they do these things because they just obviously don't understand what a myth is. The third function of a mythological order is to validate and maintain a certain sociological system, a shared set of rights and wrongs, proprieties or improprieties on which your particular social unit depends for its existence. So today we know them as laws, um, you know, <laughs> thus law and order. That's what the police force does, is it enforces our set of shared rights and wrongs, proprieties or improprieties on which our culture or our particular social unit depends for its existence. Otherwise, we would just have mayhem. Imagine if we had no social orders or proprietaries or improprietaries. Imagine if there was no rules of engagement in war. Well, it's already bad enough as it is, but believe me, without rules of engagement, it can get a lot worse. I know that for sure. The fourth function of a myth is psychological. That myth must carry the individual through the stages of life, from birth through maturity, through senility to death. The mythology must do so in accords with the social order of his group, the cosmos as understood by his group, and the monstrous mystery. So those are Joseph Campbell's four functions of myth, which I got from Pathways to Bliss, uh, published in Nevada, California, New World Library, page 6 through 10. To live holistically in harmony with the universe, the world around us, other people from other cultures and belief systems, and to effectively understand and engage ourselves, we need myths. Before leaving our explanation of mythic consciousness, it is important to remember how intimately connected our lives were to the seasons, particularly in regard to feeding ourselves, keeping ourselves cool in the summer or warm in the winter, and being aware of the effects of the forces of nature on how we interacted with other human beings, nature, and even with ourselves. The seasons change the way we engage the sun, the stars, and pretty much everything around us. It is well known that more babies were conceived in the winter months because we spent so much time inside, be it in caves, shelters, or igloos, and that in that time together we shared a lot of intimate closeness and naturally had more sex. So now that we've been through the archaic, the magic, and the mythic levels of consciousness based on Gene Gebser's model. I'd like to share some of the key points of the mental level of consciousness. Our snapshot summary is that the mental consciousness relates to the eyes, to thinking, to imaging, pictures, ideas, concepts, logos, which means 
the mind of the universe or the mind of the galaxy or the mind of the world and reductionism. Now that we humans have transcended the archaic, magic, and mythical structure stages of conscious development, we have gained the power of conscious thought. In Seeing Through the World, page 104 and 5, Jeremy Johnson encapsulates the mental structure as follows. The mental structure announces the coming of the ego. Hallelujah. The perspectival world is the mental world of spatialized consciousness. The mental breaks out of the rhythmic time and moves us into linear time, into progression and the very concept of historical time. Here we also conceive of a clock-like cosmos of rational order, the dialectic. And by the way, for those of you that aren't familiar with that word, a dialectic means a field of tensions. And the churning of mechanical gears, motoricity, to denote spatialization of time. If the magic is the point and the mythic is the polarized circle, think of the Tai Chi symbol here, then the mental is the triangle. Recall the triadic cone of perspective or perspectival space. The point of view, which is itself composed of three points, two from the observer, which would be your two eyes, and traced into the one, the vanishing point of the event horizon. The mental triangle is a monumentous rupture from the mythic membrane. Gene Gebser illustrates, this process is an extraordinary event which literally is earth-shaking. It bursts man's protective psychic circle and congruity with the psychic, naturalistic, cosmic, temporal world of polarity and enclosure. The ring is broken and man steps out of the two-dimensional surface into space, which he will attempt to master by his thinking. This is an unprecedented event. And an event that fundamentally alters the world. With the emergence of the mental level of consciousness, the circle of wholeness from which we emerged, now pierced, is the product of directional thinking. So what that means is, where we were in the archaic stage, we were unconscious. We were a product of the development of universal consciousness. The magic stage, we were in a fusion. We were really barely conscious, but we were living pretty much like an animal would live as a correlate. In the mythic, we gained our ability to listen and the foundations for um, communicating through stories and trying to understand the world through this growing sense of self versus other, or as Gebser said, our awareness that we are somehow separate from the sky and things around us, which was the beginning of the experience of the soul. And now with the mental, we get into directional thinking. So what's happening is we're losing this fusion, this deep contact with nature, and our mind is beginning to look at things directionally beginning, middle, end, for example, to start the process, the completion. 
Directional thinking is, for example, what you use when you're uh, looking at a map and you're planning in your head how do you get from point A to point B. The mental subject is now the individual, the thinker, and the content or contents of thought are now the object. Thus, a duality of experience is sustained. So this basically highlights, remember the subject is the I, the witness within you, the one who hears themselves talking to somebody else, for example. Or if you look out at the scenery of your neighborhood or your nature, uh, the nature around you, you might say, look at the beautiful bird. The bird then becomes the object, but you are the subject, the one that is perceiving the experience. So when Gebser says the mental subject is now the individual, the thinker, and the contents of thought are now the object, thus a duality is experienced and sustained, he's saying that we've risen out of the fusion where we were pretty much seeing the world where all things that we would now call objects are really experienced as some part of us. And if you study the writings of Native Americans or look at Chief Seattle's speech that he gave to the U.S. government, you will see that there is, and, and, and even in the language, for example, the Hopi language, they don't really have I language. Really, everything is expressed as part of themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. So now we have this very distinct duality emerging where the subject is perceiving everyone and everything else as an object. If you say, I love you to somebody, the I in that statement is the subject and the you is the object, so they become the object of your devotion. So the mental level really starts very clearly dividing our sense of self from any person, place, or thing. The mental expression of ourselves invites a frenzy of creative mutations in the perspectival art and the new spatializing, quantifying process. We see this in reductionistic science, map-making, and the new mathematical innovations emerging between the 13th and 15th centuries. But when it enters its deficient mode, ratio, the spatial plane becomes increasingly contentless, eroding the qualitative dimensions of the cosmos in favor of a purely measurable and void matter. The feminine mother is exchanged for the desold and retooled mental matter, which is the masculine expression. So we can also see that the mental begins to usher in what we know of now as the patriarchal dominance, the masculine dominance of how we relate to self, other, and nature. Of note here is that our conscious ego minds and the thinking processes thereof are the primary reason for the departure from holistic living. And, you know, as I'm sharing this with you, I can't help but recall the British chef Jamie Oliver, who demonstrated that 50% of school children could not identify common fruits, vegetables, and farm animals, but could identify 100% of corporate symbols shown on flashcards. So I'm highlighting this to show that 
if these kids were raised in a, a tribal society where they were engaged with nature pretty much constantly, they would have not only known the names of every single animal and probably most of all the plants around because it would have been necessary for their survival, but also because each of these living beings, plant or animal, would have been really considered much more like a family member. And they would have known intuitively the intricate balance that they had to maintain between themselves and the plants and the animal kingdoms around them so that they didn't end up starving to death. They would have also been and were also very much in touch with the spirits, the consciousness within the plants and the animals. So where the mental of today sees plants and animals and everything in nature as objects for our own use, just resources we can use willy-nilly, and can detach from how much slaughter of animals and torture there is with commercial farming and things like that. At the magic and mythical level, these people would have been deeply disturbed by that kind of behavior. And you see that today in many of the Native American Indians going out to protect um, Indian reserves and land from oil drilling and fracking and all kinds of things that relate to that. And we also see that the magic and the mythic levels of consciousness are very alive in all of us who have a deep um, desire and willingness to protect nature and stand up to people like Donald Trump that are very, very trapped in the mental level and don't really feel or intuit what they're doing to the to themselves, i.e. capital S-E-L-F. In other words, damaging the world is damaging to them and to all of us. I think the current biohacking movement is an excellent example of what happens when the ideas of mind, the mental structure of consciousness, overlook the powers of nature within and around us, departing from the common sense holistic living principles I've been sharing only to invent an endless string of gadgets to try and trick bodily systems into performing better while simply paying attention to the kinds of natural forces I'm sharing here lead us not into codependence on gadgets or lofty ideas, but into an intimate relationship with an awareness of our incredible potentials. In other words, if we access the magic, the archaic, the magic, and the mythic within us, then we're aware when we need to change our diet. We're aware of and honest about when we're tired. We're aware of and honest about when we need to move our bodies or when we need to move them differently. We're aware of our breathing. We're aware of all the things that we had to be aware of in order to really um, thrive in nature and feel our connection and use the powers of consciousness such as thinking, sensation, intuition, and feeling. Now, if you just consider one thing here, Eugene Sandow, who was for many, many years in the late 1800s and early 1900s considered the strongest man in the world, well, consider that they had not invented vitamins yet. There was no such thing as steroids there was really not even such thing as supplementation. Eugene Sandow, using nothing but good, solid training principles and sound dietary principles, was able to perform strength feats that none of the uh, 
drug-using, monstrous strongmen today can repeat. This guy was able to do a single-arm clean and jerk with a 301-pound dumbbell. He could take a horse, put the stirrups over the top of the saddle, and with one arm, pick it up and stand up and walk around stage while holding this horse. I've seen video footage of him doing multiple backflips while holding 50-pound dumbbells in each, a 50-pound dumbbell in each hand, and the list is long. Um, so really when you look at how much we've become gadget-oriented, pill-oriented, quick-fix-oriented, um, biohack-oriented, and the fact that it really hasn't made us healthier people and that a lot of the world's strongest athletes and bodybuilders are very sick people, you can actually see what happens when we start falling in love with ideas written on paper or chemical formulations built in computer systems that say this drug or this such and such herb or vitamin will fix this and fix that without looking at it holistically. With Plato, we see the emergence of the conceptual hair splitting or taking apart style of thinking. The polar constellation or mythic polarity, Gebster writes, is no longer valid. What is valid are the parts which can be made into opposites. In other words, discursive, digressive, wandering, second-hand, dull, lengthy rambling is born. To highlight this issue, just think of all the books you've read that are filled with rambling words used to describe or explain what could have easily been encapsulated into one chapter, or of the talk show hosts and podcasts that say a lot of nothing, or university courses that are full of theories and often give little practical information with which to make real changes in one's life or the world. And you then see the challenges of the mental level, not to discount the benefits. I mean, we've done a lot of amazing things from advances in medicine to advances in technology. Uh, I mean, the list is very long, but there's two sides to this sword. This challenge with the mental realm and intellectualism is the reason that Jung said intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And go right back to the biohacking movement. Most of these people are trying to use biohacking tricks to cover up or compensate for a lack of willingness to manage themselves effectively, to get to bed on time, to eat real food, and do the things that we should all learn to do by listening to our bodies. Um, think of all the people that keep trying diet after diet after diet instead of simply just paying attention to what their body's telling them and having a solid four-doctor practice. With the mental construct, we see Hegel's famous dialectic of thesis-antithesis synthesis, to which I've added a key element of Ohm, the rest cycle, which Hegel overlooks, and it plagues everyone trapped in their head today. Now, what I mean by that is Hegel's synthesis of thesis, my idea, antithesis, the challenges that come with implementing it, and synthesis, the resolution of those challenges, did not have rest, but the entire universe runs on the cycle of Ohm. Ah, I'm awakening. Ooh, I'm dreaming and creating my dream. Mm, I'm falling asleep. 
fall time to celebrate underscore complete rest, deep sleep, or death. So when we realize that the ohm cycle is the primary cycle driving all of existence in nature, it's very important to realize that the intellectual mind has a tendency to go from thesis to antithesis to synthesis and right back to thesis again. Or to say it another way, start one project, start another project, start another project, start another project. So what you end up with people is people that may have more money coming in, but are often extremely burned out and lose their sense of passion and drive. They lose their, their, their juice, as Osha would say. So when we look at the fact that our emotions and our body are the home of intuition and being present with what rises from the unconscious, be they dreams, uh, daydreams or night dreams or self-reflection, um, then when you take the rest cycle out, we don't have time to dream or reflect. My experience of the mental level of consciousness within myself as a teacher is that most people have a lot of thesis. They struggle deeply to learn from and gain the wisdom from the resulting antithesis, which is the work of implementation, the work of trial and error. Most people today just want rapid or almost instant gratification. And if they don't get it, they give up very easily. So what happens is, as I was saying earlier, they seldom get to synthesis or rest. The result is that we have a world full of heady people that sound good in a coffee shop or on a lecture podium, but don't exemplify or embody what they're telling others and fall in love with ideas at the expense of productivity or engaging reality. Just look at how many uh, people fell hook, line, and sinker for the university nutritionist claim about how bad saturated fats were and fats in general were for them and stopped eating them only to become unhealthy, overweight, or obese, obese. And I could literally give a thousand examples like that. So there's the intellectual idea. Think of how many people read studies saying this drug is going to help you with this only later to either die or have serious health complications because they believed what they read without looking into it or looking for counter-opinions to see what a holistic viewpoint would be like. The triangle of mental consciousness is what produced the Holy Trinity found in many world religions, but because of the reductionist side effects of the mental without synthesis of archaic magic and mythical structure stages of consciousness— This resulted in the breaking or piercing of the circle of wholeness represented by the word God, producing an ongoing intellectual battle over details that merely distract the worshiper or student from the whole intent of religion, which is reunion or joining the circle of life, which is all-inclusive. An intellectual denial of God is the product. Why? Because God can't be weighed or measured objectively. So the trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is reduced to scientific materialism. The objective accounting of the universe is quantified and glorified in the name of science, all the while ignoring the fact that the very mystery from which the Big Bang emerged represents source, the absolute potential, which is what the word God actually means. 
We can see why Lao Tzu warns us that over-sharpening a knife only makes it dull by the fact that Stephen Hawking stated that his science and mathematics demonstrated that the universe emerges from zero and therefore there is no need for God. He too was caught in the trap of believing that if there was or is a God, it must be objectifiable, not realizing that the subject cannot objectify subject. This is kind of like the paradox of researching consciousness and trying to prove what it is and saying that consciousness isn't necessary for uh, quantum physics, for example, when it's consciousness that's actually doing the research and doing the looking and organizing the studies. And without consciousness, you couldn't do any of that stuff. So the point I'm making is Stephen Hawking was saying there is no God because he could not objectify God, which is trying to objectify subject. You can't objectify the witness looking through you. You can experience it. You can know that it's there. You can know that you're thinking. You can know that you're looking. You can know that you're feeling. But you can't quantify what it is that's having the experience of looking, thinking, or feeling. If you want to take that another way, if God, unconditional love, is zero, then we must remember that zero times anything is zero. Mathematic, mathematicians and scientists often seem to hard, have a hard time realizing that God, in all caps, or source, is poetic, unrational, and cannot be defined by rational concepts or constructs, and still reach the wholeness of source. Because anytime you objectify God as anything, you've actually departed from what God really is. And it's a very, very dangerous proposition. <laughs> the Holy Trinity has now become an intellectual concept in which science has killed God and labeled the Holy Spirit to the degree that its instruments can validate waves of frequency, be they gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, the color spectrum that we can see, infrared, and whatever they can measure, all the while overlooking the spiritual fact that spirit is the flow of energy and information that literally informs, in-forms matter, animates life, and is the Holy Spirit that gives our souls experience, feeling, and ultimately meaning. The Holy Spirit is both what animates you, the universe, and is the Christian name for the flow of energy and information that is the constant feedback loop with the universe or the whole and yourself. Most of you would know that Rene Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. This led to the overvaluation of thinking, which is a mode of existence that often ignores feeling, sensation, and intuition. And so we have to say, how is that working for us? And what is the cost to nature when we don't feel, sense, or intuit the ramifications of mental of the mental genius of a chemist that poisons the farmlands, the water, and the skies, or makes plants producing pesticides within them only to be eaten by human beings, not to mention the other animals that eat them and die. And the list of such imbalanced ideas and products produced by our love of the mental is exceedingly, in fact, dangerously long. If you've understood what I've shared so far, it's easy to look out into the world and see that like a double-edged sword. It can be a very good tool. You can use it to protect yourself, but you can also uh, mishandle it, cut your own appendages off, and hurt people that you love or destroy things. The mental level of consciousness expresses itself in language, be it 
verbal means of describing images within us, or written language. It is worth noting that the great spiritual teachers of antiquity did not want their students writing down what they taught them because they knew full well that the result would be the worshipping of words and mistaking the idea for the actual experience of life, love, and God or source. The mental is very good at making symbols. Symbols, by definition, point beyond themselves to something, an experience, which can't be conveyed within the symbol itself. For example, if you see the, a symbol of the heart, a picture of uh, just a simple heart diagram like we have on our iPhones, if somebody sends you a heart symbol, you don't look at the symbol itself. You typically connect to the fact that they're saying, I love you, or that they're sending love. But if you start trying to dissect the symbol to find where the love is, well, then you're doing what science tries to do to find God. And now you've basically destroyed the whole power of the symbol by not paying attention to what it's really there to do, which is to direct your intention and awareness and open your heart to the fact that the person that just sent you the symbol is connecting to you via the symbol. So the symbol is only a means of awakening you to that the connection is present, but it is not the symbol itself that carries the meaning. The result is that the mental tends to turn symbols into signs and to try to explain every detail reductionistically in a masculine form. A symbol becomes a sign when an agreement is made as to the meaning of the symbol. So how many of you read the symbols C-A-T and find yourself slipping into meditations in which you experience catness versus simply imagining a cat and leaving it at that because you think you know what a cat is? You may know what a cat is, but knowing what a cat is and petting one, feeding one, or playing with one is the only way to experience catness. So if you understand what I'm sharing here, then you also will understand what Nietzsche meant, Frederick Nietzsche, when he said, God is dead. What he meant was, to the degree that religion has convinced you what God is and what God wants or expects of you, then you no longer have a symbolic relationship with the mystery that the word God represents, because God cannot be encapsulated objectively through mind. It's impossible. You cannot exclude yourself from the equation of God. Therefore, any scientist trying to figure out how big God is or how much God weighs is excluding themselves from the formulation. And because God, by definition, is absolute, you cannot get outside of the absolute. And because the experience of God is subjective, and anything objective is a valuation of the subjective experience, and you can't weigh and measure the subjective, then when you start agreeing to religious ideas about what God is or what wants, you now take the symbol represented by the three letters G-O-D and turn it into a sign. A sign is something that we have an agreed upon understanding of. When we pull up to a stop sign, we don't pull there and up to the stop sign and meditate on what it's connecting us to, although that might be good because it does mean stop. <laughs> but what we do is we just know that it means to step on the brake and wait till you make sure the intersection is clear before you go. So that's what happens when you have a sign. But if you take 
the cross, for example, and make the assumption that just by looking at the cross, you know what it means and stop opening your heart to it or your intuition to it or your capacity for feeling to it, then it really just becomes nothing different than a plus sign in mathematics. But when you realize that that cross symbolizes the sacrifice that all people make to grow in consciousness, to deal with the real challenges of love and relationship, then the cross has a much more powerful, powerful effect because it's pointing to the experience that you're having and that other people are having and that the world is really all about. So God became the cat in people's heads when they believed they knew or understood wholly enough to stop thinking about it as the sentence went on. In other words, as the sentence starts talking about the dog, you just don't think about the cat anymore. When you think you know what God is, you just keep reading and pretend that you already know what God is, so you actually stack um, misunderstanding on top of misunderstanding on top of misunderstanding, and you can look around the world and see what the result of all that is. But like the actual cat, they didn't connect through the mentalization of the symbol as sign. They stopped engaging in the mystery. The essence of what the word God symbolizes and what God is, is being left out. So worse yet, the belief that one knows what God is, ideas about God, is the most common source of war and conflict ever to affect this planet. In other words, in every war, people on both sides are sure God's on their side and what the other people doing are doing is wrong. And that is to turn God into a sign and fight over it. The wise realize that the noosphere, the plane of mind, doesn't need a physical body. Ideas don't need to eat, drink, and have no sleep-wake cycle, and that to invest too much time in them results in worshipping ideas above and beyond what supports the biological brain that interfaces with the mind field, while at once forgetting to tend to the garden, be that garden one's body, their home garden, the local parks, or nature, and the garden's essential supporting and feeding functions that are so essential to our survival. We pride ourselves on our military technology and forget that we have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world something like 179 times over. So until you can truly live in your mind, it's wise to realize that the archaic magic and mythic levels that ultimately gave rise to mental awareness within us are the products of nature, which is itself truly holistic. So what I'm saying is, until you can actually function out of your body in the realm of the noosphere or the sphere of ideas or thoughts, then living in your head is very dangerous. And if you look around the world, you can see people falling in love with a wide variety of ideas from the only way to get help is drugs and surgery or chemotherapy or I'll never be successful unless I have so much money or I'm not successful unless I have a certain car or live in a certain area or wear certain fashions. These are all ideas of mind. And so is a lot of the issues of biohacking, as I was alluding to earlier. So if we connect our minds to the deep connection we have to nature, which brings us back in touch with our feeling state, our listening state, our ability to make sounds to communicate with nature and to use our consciousness to talk directly with nature, which would be called telepathy in modern terms. 
when we do that, then the world is much more whole and we realize how we are abusing ideas and it's costing us a lot in relationship to self, other, and nature. All that said, it's essential to realize that the real purpose of the mental level of consciousness is allow us is to allow us to witness, identify, realize, and take stock in the whole trinity of God, matter, and spirit, which is love's expression. And in so doing, become co-creators in making the garden more beautiful, sustainable. For it is the very garden in which souls come to realize the truth of what they are, opening the door to moving from being a citizen of the world to being a citizen of the universe. The product of effective gardening, my friends, is freedom. So now we will get into the integral level of consciousness. This is the probably the hardest for most people to understand because, first of all, you can't really truly understand integral consciousness until you're in integral consciousness. So as I share what integral consciousness is, I've done my best to take some of the very complex wording from the various resources I'm drawing on to share with you and try to encapsulate it in ways that are easier to understand. But as a snapshot overview, integral consciousness is encapsulated through the concepts of seeing through, looking through, presence, integral time, being world-centric in our orientation to life, and integral consciousness is truly my dream for everybody. So with that said, let's get into it. Our final level of consciousness as researchers have identified it on planet Earth at this time, there is discussion amongst Ken Wilbur and others uh, that investigate these concepts with regard to a new level that is emerging now, but it is not yet identifiable. So our sort of final stop on this journey in our first segment of our series here in um, Transforming Yourself and Holistic Living is Integral Consciousness. And in Integral Consciousness, or your snapshot view is seeing through, presence, integral time, world-centric thinking. And I will state that my dream for everybody is integral consciousness for reasons that will become pretty obvious here shortly. Now, sadly, Ken Wilber cites research that indicates that only 2% of the world population is currently at the integral level of consciousness. That said, the crown jewel of holistic living and relating to self, other, the world, and life in its infinite depths is integral consciousness. To finish the first edition of this important series, Ancient Wisdom for Reimagining Your Health and Performance, I'd like to share some of the key characteristics of integral consciousness. Jeremy Johnson and Gene Gebser both warned that to stratify or create a ladder pyramid type structure or any form of linear expression of integral consciousness is at once to revert to the mental, the territory of map making. So. That's a key point. The, the ego and the intellect likes to structure things in a linear fashion. 
as you'll see as we go through the qualities of integral consciousness, it's not linear. It's truly holistic. So the tendency is when we're first budding in integral consciousness is to continue the habit of of map making, of uh, trying to um, convince ourselves that we know where we're going and how we're going to get there, which is really the ego trying to make itself feel safe. But the integral level can't be reached until somebody's um, false self is healed and the true self emerges, which is unity with capital S-E-L-F, the whole, the world, the, the universe one who becomes a citizen of all that is, really. Now, among the key descriptions for in the integral level of consciousness are clarity and seeing through. So those two words really encapsulate integral consciousness, being clear and seeing through. And the seeing through will become clear as we go along here. To better understand what I'm sharing here, consider that archaic consciousness represents a zero-dimensional reality, one in which consciousness is fused. You could say that it is all subject. There is no subject-object relationship experienced at that level, but something like an unconscious unfolding. Imagine you are an acorn, for example. You as an acorn wouldn't be in dialogue with the future tree within you, the archetype of the tree within you. It would be absolutely known beyond reason or doubt, and there would be no impetus for thought. For example, do you walk around thinking about whether or not you can tie a shoe? Or do you stop using your mind for that function because you know how to tie a shoe? Th that's an important way of, of relating to the fact that when you're at the zero-dimensional level, it's all subject. And if you're an acorn, you already know you're an oak tree. It's just a matter of letting the experience of becoming unfold without judgment or expectation. Now, moving forward from the archaic level, we got to the magic level of consciousness, which is symbolized as a point. The mythic, if you'll remember, was symbolized as a circle, and the mental, a triangle, out of which emerges the sphere as a symbolic representation of integral consciousness. To hold or behold the sphere of integral consciousness is at once to see through the triangle, the circle, and point all of which are emergent from zero. What I feel inspired to say here is that through mental consciousness, we look into space and see nothing there, but we forget that we are there. So think of, you know, looking out into the stars at night. You see a bunch of emptiness and it seems like there's nothing there. But what I'm saying is, don't forget, you're there. <laughs> you are there. Through integral consciousness, we look into what is empty space and we see everything there. It is diaphanous. No thing is at once everything. So that's hard for some people to grapple, but if it's hard to grapple with, it's because there isn't a way of comprehending integral consciousness until one has reached that level because it's like 
asking a computer to solve a problem that it does not yet have the software to um, handle. So all I can do is point to the kind of experiences that I have because I pretty much live at the integral level. And, and, and I've done a lot of work with myself over the years to you know, continue to grow myself through all the things that I teach through the Czech Institute. That, that's the roadmap. That's how I figured it all out, doing the work. And, and this is my offering to all of you. A key point to comprehend is that to get to integral or to move through any of the structure stages of consciousness, we don't leave the archaic behind to get to the magic. We don't leave the magic behind to get to the mythic. We don't leave mythic behind to get to the mental. We don't leave the mental behind to get to integral. I spoke earlier of how the when we get caught or trapped in the mental, then we do things like come up with theories about why myths are bullshit, which means that you're not using the potential of the mental and that you are not transcending and including, you have just transcended and excluded. So imagine if you got in your car and thought just because you're sitting above the wheels in your seat that you no longer need the wheels. <laughs> well, you'd have a hard time getting anywhere. Your, your elevated view would not be very exciting after a while. So just like we need what touches the road in a car, we'll call that archaic, and we need the magic of the wheel, and we need the myth of the story of the automobile, and we need the mind to get from point A to point B. We need all of it to have the experience of the joy of arriving and the joy of the journey. So the key point I'm driving at here is when we are healthy and we engage each of these levels of consciousness, we come to realize that each of them has very unique functions. The archaic, for example, is very linked to your capacity for intuition. The magic is very linked to your capacity to dissolve into and have flow states. The mythic is very linked to your capacity to make meaning out of your story and the story of life itself. The mental is very, very useful for comprehending and working with complex concepts and ideas and weaving different things together to produce novel outcomes or to create novel solutions to problems that can't be solved at the lower levels. In the integral, there's a sense of being unbound by time as we typically know and relate to it. We can effectively engage linear time without having to leave behind vertical time. Said another way, we can be in conversation with another, be fully present, and at one and the same time be present with the flow of spirit coming to and from other dimensions. This is the kind of consciousness I use, for example, when I'm conducting a healing ceremony or helping others find within themselves what they themselves can't see because it's, because it's veiled from their ego's perception. This is like being in a flow state where you're dancing, know you're dancing, and at the same time are lucidly dreaming. This is the way of the true modern shaman. A modern shaman 
would be modern because they've got access to all the structure stages they've transcended but have included them and can take advantage of things like modern technology, modern science, and modern ways of understanding the mysteries that those at the mental, uh, mythic, and magic levels cannot comprehend. There is no comprehension at the archaic level, as I described earlier with the acorn and the oak tree example. From the perspective of time, one at the integral level can be fully present and see the past and the future at once. Naturally, this is hard to imagine, but if you take a piece of string, cut a length of string, say a foot of string, put a dot in the middle of it, that would represent the present. The left end of the string would represent the past, and the right end of the string would represent the future. Now, if you tie those two ends together, you have a circle. So past, present, and future are all present in one moment or now. Now imagine the circle in three dimensions, and you have a sphere. Integral consciousness is spherical. It's truly holistic. Now, with regard to the spiritual, where the zero-dimensional reality of archaic consciousness is unconscious, the integral level is inclusive of all previous stages simultaneously alive and integrated as one holistic whole experience, a metaphorical dreaming awake in which one can see through and move freely forward and backward in time. Again, very much like what a shaman does when conducting healing ceremonies. Verity, a true principle or belief, especially one of fundamental importance, allows one to see through, where one, for example, from a mental level of consciousness may see God as that which is something other than evil, integral vision sees that in God, good and evil are not polarities or juxtapositions, they are perspectives of the one. To see good and evil as opposites, or even as complementary opposites, requires perspective, and integral consciousness is aperspectival. It means free of perspective. Thus, hopefully you can appreciate that being comfortable with paradox is integral. It is truly holistic. And that's one of the challenges that stops people from reaching the integral level in Ken Wilber's stage, uh, structure stages, before you would get to integral, you would be in the postmodern stage, and the hang-up there is dealing with paradoxes. And if you can't deal with the paradox, then what happens is people fall into an existential angst because they just keep weighing the positive against the negative and getting zero. So at the end of the day, when you do the math from that perspective, everything equals nothing, so why bother? God is good, God isn't good. God loves me, God doesn't love me. I don't have money, I need money. Money's not important, money is important. Sex isn't important, sex is important. So what happens is after a while, somebody who can't transcend the postmodern stage, which is part of the mental stage, gets trapped. So it takes a fair bit of personal and spiritual development to reach the point where you can look into things without having to have a perspective to anchor your sense of self or validate yourself 
Um, and this is why, for example, so many people have a hard time with my approach to diet. Uh, you, if you read comments that vegetarians and vegans write me when I you know, share that there is no such thing as the right diet except the one that your body needs, or things like, you know, killing an animal to eat it and keep yourself healthy so you can do good things in the world uh, is just comes back to me as, oh, you know, how can you say that? How can you be so insensitive and, you know, dot, dot, dot. But the reality of it is, is at the integral level of consciousness, you don't see yourself as killing an animal because you're fully aware that physics has demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt Energy produced cannot be destroyed, only transformed, and everything in creation, including yourself, boils down to a flow of energy and information, including the food you're eating. Therefore, when you're eating an animal out of love and respect, you are bringing the energy and information that was once the cow or the chicken or the fish into you, and that flow of energy and information is now added to a more complex system and so you have to say, does the animal really die or does it transcend and become human through you? Well, my experience, which I could do a long podcast on, is that it transcends and that we are capable of helping everything we eat experience being human to the degree that we live and love in such a way that <laughs> it's a more positive experience than than being whatever it was before. Um, I'll leave the your imagination up to the opposite of that. Now, to give you an example, uh, another example, from an integral point of view, one may be both sick or diseased and at one and the same time healthy. And I will talk more about this in part two. But the integral person isn't bound by just their physical body or just a temporary circumstance. The integral person can see through. They can understand that to the degree their lack of health is from lack of participation or lack of knowledge or lack of awareness, then the pain teacher shows up as a gift to upgrade their software, then there is an engagement in the process of being healthy because you're using the opportunity of being sick or broken to expand your consciousness and gain more wisdom. And ultimately, that's healthy. Remember, you can't take your body with you when you die. You can't take your belongings with you. All you can take with you is what you've become. And reaching the integral level of consciousness means you've added a lot back into the universe. You have been a very profound agent of experience for the universe itself. So in part two of Ancient Wisdom for Reimagining Your Health and Performance, we will look at ways we can apply our holistic upbringing in nature and the structure stages of consciousness in simple, integrated, holistic ways. In other words, I will take you through each of the structure stages, archaic, magic, mythic, mental, and share 
what are the ways that we can engage ourselves, knowing how this relates to different parts of our body, different sensory functions, look at what maybe we're missing right now, and then realize from the menu items I'm going to give you to say, okay, if you want to access your archaic consciousness, here's some of the things that might indicate that you're in need of more archaic consciousness, and here's some things you can do to reintegrate that back into your consciousness so that we can go through this transcend and include process beginning where we need the most help using simple and practical ways. In other words, I'm going to teach you real uh, bio-integration, which is different than biohacking. There will be no hacking, but there will be a lot of integration for growth. There won't be shortcuts, but there will be efficient ways that work and are sustainable. So I hope you've enjoyed looking into our holistic developmental history and that my podcast today has given you a glimpse of the abilities and levels of consciousness we've developed during our journey on Earth so far. Thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to share more with you in part two. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with as many of your friends as possible and help me grow the podcast, share the love. The more people that we can get to integral consciousness, the less wars there's going to be and the faster we'll uh, work with Mother Nature to bring balance to the planet and the more love and harmony we can share with each other. Lots of love. Aho, great spirit. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check. You can follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4DPodcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and at the Czech Institute streaming channel, checkiva.com. You won't want to miss the grand unveiling of a whole new shopping experience at the Czech Institute, coming this Black Friday, November 29th. To celebrate, we're offering 20% off all original Czech products from Friday, November 29th through Monday, December 1st. Plus, there will be special additional discounts throughout the day on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Stay tuned to the Czech Institute social media and sign up at the Czech Institute to get email announcements about all the great deals. <laughs>